Welcome to Movie Film Studios, the only podcast that takes you inside the mind of two film studio executives as we unravel and then re-ravel the best that Hollywood has to offer. I'm Isaac. And I'm AJ. And this week we step out of the studio for the first time in nearly four years and reveal to you that we aren't actually movie studio executives. We've lifted the curtain. A little bit curtain. of a behind-the-scenes exclusive. Uh, really just a, a conversation about uh, what's been going on, uh, where we're at, and... Uh, fulfilling a promise or even a bet that was made very early on in the podcast a bet that i'd completely forgotten about actually until you reminded me you constantly reminded me of it for some reason um but back in the day in one of our very very early episodes of the podcast where we hadn't really figured out the format at all we made a little bet um now post-production aj go back and find that episode and slot it in right here Let's talk about the Dark Universe, right? So they're setting up a collection of characters that will apparently appear in further films, of which I don't think there will be any because this film did terribly. Um, I, but, I, reckon, I reckon at least two of them go ahead. They, really? That's, right, well, look forward to seeing those two is, films. Is, is it a, a bet that we're going to have? We're going to have like a, a tracker, like yeah, let's a, a do board it. All right, let's bets? do it. The bet is that we will see two other films two. in this exact universe so it can't be a reboot that has to be has to be this universe right and has to make explicit reference to this universe or officially be part of this canon and then you win the bet all right and but for you to win there has to be none none i don't know what the stakes for this bet are (laughs) we'll have to figure it out as we go and also it's going to take a long time for me to win the bet (laughs) theoretically i'll be on my deathbed i'm like it still could happen (laughs) i think if if they don't have it done in 10 years it's not happening yep I don't think uh, if they have it done in five years. All right, so if if they don't have one done yes. in the next five years, yep. I lose. Yep. What are the win loss conditions of this bet? Is the is I don't the, know. the yeah, better what question? Do we, what do we win? Um, uh, I think I think you're going to have to be for or you or I are going to have to be forced to watch something <laughs> that we do not want to watch. The loser has to sit down again and watch Kingdom of the Crystal oh, Skull. God. And reinforce all of those horrible, horrible scenes that we had firmly put away in the backs of our mind. Nice. Good job. I sounded so young. Yeah, I mean, I also probably sounded significantly different. I think, as you mentioned, it was sort of very early on in the podcast and really before we'd found our feet in terms of what we were trying to do. We're actually at that point watching the movies that we were talking about, uh, which added quite a lot of time to the uh to the the production yeah. of actually getting them out i was listening to a different podcast at the time that had a um a thing where the uh hosts would make bets with one one other and then at the end of the year they'd go back to all of the bets that they'd done they'd okay. check who would you know won more of the bets or less of the bets and they'd sort of make a, a feature out of it i kind of i think i was coming from a position where i wanted to introduce a similar system to our podcast and yep. this bet happened to be the only bet that we we actually uh, ever did it sort of fell along the wayside as we found our feet but it always sort of stuck with me as being something that i mean when it became very obvious that they weren't doing any more dark universe stuff <laughs> hey look i that, held that, out that, hope for you for the longest time i gave you the best possible chance in fact i almost said to you because i i know that they made a um mummy demake 2d platforming game which we kind of came to the decision that that didn't really count as being another chapter in what they termed the dark universe. The funny thing, I went back the other day and like 
looked at the Wikipedia article for um, the Dark Universe, and it led me down the the path of like the official Twitter account for the Dark Universe, which only has oh, they had official one only one tweet, and it's a photo of the cast of the Mummy, which had um, Russell Crowe, Tom Cruise, Sophia Boutella, um, and and various other actors none of whom were in the same studio at the same time when this photo was taken, but that was the only thing they ever tweeted. Um, I and- vaguely recall seeing a similar Photoshopped casting, but that had something like Javier Bardem, who was supposed to be the That's Invisible right. Man yeah, or Frankenstein. Or- yeah, yeah, it's that one. It's got everyone that-, that was planned to be in this supposed dark well, this, universe. This is why I felt so secure in betting that there would be at <laughs> least two more films in this universe. Yeah. Because they, they had it all planned it out. Um, but obviously the terms of the bet was that if, uh, they needed to make two within 10 years, but I would lose the bet if they hadn't made one within five years. Yep. And that is why, uh, essentially we're, 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 I'm fulfilling the bet on podcast. You are. I'm going to do the thing. And, and the reason, again, this is so important is that I, when I was trying to come up with terms for the worst thing to do while, if I lost the bet, Mm. I legitimately hate this film. It is a punishment. I, I did vow. This is actually breaking a vow to myself in that uh, the last time I watched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was with you yeah. just before we started the idea for this podcast. In yeah. fact, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was fundamental in us coming up with the core idea of the podcast, which yeah. is you know just two people talking about films. We watched it together. I hated it so much. I vowed to myself... Never again. Never yeah. again in my life will I watch this film. I love the original trilogy too much. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy with those three films. I can pretend that this fourth film doesn't exist and I'll be a much happier person and so I'll never watch it again. Yeah. So when it came time to, to actually come up with stakes for the bet, watching Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was legitimately at that point the worst thing that I could, I thought, <laughs> could happen as punishment for a bet. So I mean, I was just, right there with you because I equally hate that film. It's one of the things we've bonded over, um, and one of the things we have in common. Because surprisingly enough, um, our taste in film do vary a little bit at times, and some of the films that I think are absolute masterpieces for various number of reasons, you disagree for various numbers of uh, numbers of reasons. But Crystal Skull is just a film that we both hated like extensively um so So, i mean the 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 very first idea for the podcast was we watch a bad film in a in a um a franchise we watch a good film in a franchise and we sit down and we break it apart and we try and analyze what is good about it and what is bad about it and that's that's, that is the uh the first episode we do is the is jurassic park where we watch lost world we watch jurassic park and we talk about it the issue with that format is you watch a two-hour film then you watch another two-hour film and then you sit down and you record an hour of a podcast and all of a sudden you've spent five hours um, trying to get like an hour of entertainment. It was just too much, which is uh, why the second episode we, we dial back and we just try and watch one movie in, uh, the, in the franchise. In this case, we watched the, the the Mummy, which is where this dark universe bet came from. But uh, that that watching a good film and watching a bad film came from those conversations that we were having before the podcast, uh, which came from talking about how we love Indiana Jones so much. We do. And how uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was, was so disappointing. There were a couple of other... Um, films we had talked about the Mad Max franchise uh, there's, there's other ones in there We're, that that idea probably didn't have the, the same amount of legs no we're going to uh, run out like, of films very very quickly I and, think and spending five hours locked in a room with each other each yeah. week we'll probably run out of patience as well because so. there was also half, a, half an idea of comparing films that were a reboot 
of a previous film or a previous series as well and stuff like the Mad Max films kind of sat within that world the Jurassic Park versus Jurassic World films also sat within that world but you're gonna run out of um, remakes very very quickly I think unless Hollywood just keeps churning them out so we thought given that we're now on the eve or the cusp of the fifth film in what was the Indiana Jones trilogy we thought it'd be a great idea for Isaac to go ahead and honor the terms of the bet He's going to kick on and start watching Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I won't be doing that because I don't want to. Uh, and, and, it, and you don't have to. You didn't I don't lose have the bet. to. Exactly. I Very won that bet. Don't have to I'm going to revel in the pain and torture that you're about to go through. And we're just going to have a chat about film and life and uh, just things in general. All right. So if you're playing along at home, and I really do hope that you're not because this is <laughs> just just torturous experience. Uh, it's uh, a two-hour and two-minute film. I'm going to count us down, uh-huh. uh, and when you hear the crack of the whip, if you want to watch it along at home, you can press play on yours as well. All right. Three, two, one. one. And we have the Lucasfilm logo. It starts off so well, doesn't it? It does start off well. I'm really going to try not to focus so much on what's happening on the film. It's not really a film commentary uh-huh. so much as it is a conversation. You uh-huh. will hear me audibly wince and groan a few times i'm sure uh, as you know little groundhogs tunnel their way out yeah. of molehills oh god it's it's um in- <laughs> it's interesting thinking about this film as well because like we both don't like it and a lot has been said about this film as well from various parts of the internet and culture and, and all this kind of stuff a lot of people use that and this was like the um the focus of a south park episode at one point as well about how George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and I don't, I truly don't want to actually say. That's fine. You don't have something to. about doing something to their childhood. I just don't want to say because I think it's deeply inappropriate nowadays. Um, and we don't want to talk about that. We don't really want to be negative per se. No, extensively I, I think about this film anymore. Possibly, I mean, and you mentioned it as well. the The new Indiana Jones film, Indiana Jones Five, uh, and the Dial of Destiny, oh. uh, comes out in about a week. You and I have booked our gold class tickets That's to it. go yep. see that. Uh, still very, despite um, the fact that neither of us particularly like this film, I am still incredibly excited I am to too. see a new entry in the franchise. Yeah. Uh, the trailer looks, with the exception of the final shot of the trailer, which for some reason is lots of people shooting at Indiana Jones as he ducks under a table and they all miss, uh-huh. which I think is a pretty horrible joke. I reckon the, the rest of the trailer looks quite good. Um, it does. So I'm, and I again, mean, we can only really theorize what might actually happen in that film, but yeah. I, I am quietly optimistic. I am too. Look, I'm looking forward to it in the same way that I was for Crystal Skull. When the trailers for Crystal Skull came out, it just looked like a cracking good adventure. Um, and there are parts of Crystal Skull that are fun, and it's still great to see Harrison Ford running around and doing his thing. Um, the trailer for the fifth one, Dial of Destiny, um, again, I'm still looking forward to it. I am concerned about bits of it, but I also will give the benefit of the doubt to James Mangold, who's directing it, directed, has directed a couple of shocking films, but has also directed some truly incredible films, probably the most famous being Logan. Um, but he also did, I did, did he do Letters to Iwo Jima? Or is that Clint Eastwood that I'm thinking of? Uh, I'm actually not across his film career all that much. Um, I can tell you what I did notice about the trailer. The first time I watched it was on YouTube and yep. it looked it looked kind of horrible. It looked very 
uh, washed out, uh, not washed out, like maybe even oversaturated CGI. Yeah. Um, but having seen it a couple of times in cinemas, it looks much better on the big screen. The, you know, whatever, obviously the films these days have a, 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 a like a, a pretty bad habit of um, just shooting all their actors on a green screen and uh, yeah. digitally um, building in the backgrounds afterwards. And that's what it looked like on YouTube. However, in, in the cinema, it actually looked good. It looked cinematic. It looked, it looked well lit. Uh, it's obviously so, yeah. very difficult for filmmakers to, to have to contend with people watching their films on lots of different devices. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, the, the director of Dune, uh, Denis Villeneuve, or whatever yes. his name is, Villeneuve. was complaining was complaining that people were going to be watching his masterpiece on a, you uh, know, a 10 by <laughs> 5 centimeter iPhone screen and he yeah. wanted to stop it from being available yep. for streaming to force people into the movies. And I kind of get it in a way um, that yeah. you're doing yourself a disservice with that convenience. Yep. But the, I, I mean, this is why I'm quite glad that we're going to see this on the big screen, uh, the Indiana Jones 5, because I think it is necessary to to enjoy it in that sort of capacity it's interesting too because i'm in two minds about that um so first of all just to rewind and pretend i have film clout uh <laughs> 310 to yuma was the film i was oh, thinking that is, of. Not, that is a good film yeah. i really enjoyed that it's again it's an interesting he's got a very eclectic uh um filmography because he's got walk the line um the, you know the one with joaquin phoenix uh, about johnny cash he's got 310 to yuma He's also got Night and Day, the um the sort of Cameron buddy, Diaz the and buddy action comedy yeah. film, yeah. Uh The Wolverine, which was really average, honestly. Um but then yeah, has Logan, Ford vs. Ferrari. It's unclear what this film is gonna be like. Um but yeah, going back to how directors want their films to be seen, um I remember because you and I went to the same uni. We weren't there at the same time, but we actually ended up doing the same course. And even back in those days, which is a good, I want to say 10 years now, maybe over 10 years ago when we were in university, our lecturers were talking about how people view content and how you have to consider that, you know, you might make a film, but someone's going to want to watch it on a postage stamp on an iPod or something. This is how old it was. Yeah. It's the same um, when you're designing a web page that you just yeah. don't know what, what device people are going to be accessing it from and what orientational of your graphics have to be it has to be a consideration yeah but yeah same thing with the the viewing of, of uh, films but at the same time trying to you know target all of those different perspectives and screens and and stuff it's like well maybe we need to go back to something simpler and just say this is a film you see it on a big screen the end but having said that i've watched so many movies on the train on my iphone just purely because i don't have the time to sit in front of a screen for two hours to watch a film. So regardless of that, I'm still looking forward to Indy 5. Yeah. I mean, there's so much transit time as well, and there's only so much time you can have to, to watch movies. I'm a bit of a, a yeah. podcast slash audiobook listener to on public yeah. transport, yep. just for that very reason of I don't necessarily want to ruin a film by watching it on, on such a, a small screen. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I and I just don't get to the movies that much anymore. I, I have a, a membership for our um, local cinema here, which yeah. uh, expired the other day. It was a one-year membership, and the, the only film I'd actually gone and watched there in the past 12 months was Thor Love and Thunder. <laughs> I'm like, I, 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 kind of, I kind of had an entire year where I've only been to this cinema once. Yeah. Surely that's... I mean, I do occasionally go to other cinemas, you know, if I'm in a different city with family or whatever, we, we often go yeah, to the yeah. movies, but 
the fact that in my own personal life, actually making time to go to the movies is seems to be something that just I don't I don't make time for anymore. Yeah, and you're right in that the majority of the films that you watch are at home. I'm probably, you know, washing the dishes or vacuuming or whatever at the same time <laughs> as trying to enjoy a film. It's just not the, not really the right way to engage with, uh, with that yeah, sort of thing. So. It's, it's an interesting world, I think, right now as well. Because I, like, I literally had the exact same situation. My own film subscription to a, a cinema ran out, but I renewed it. I renewed the subscription for two more years, even though I hadn't seen a film at that cinema for month and month and month um purely because i think it's just that there's that kind of romantic notion of going to the film and i don't mean in terms of like a relationship with someone but just the the aesthetic of going into a cinema that has its purpose its only purpose is to show you a story or to show you something on a screen so everything is designed around that the seats are there ready for you they're positioned correctly in front of the screen the speakers are all set up correctly. Someone has thought about, at least in the film sense, how sound is outputted through those screens, through that, through those speakers, and so on. And you get that surround experience. It it is an experience, right? It's meant to take over all of your senses. Well, most of your senses, unless you're going to, you know, some nine D experience where they throw <laughs> water at you and there's smells coming out of uh, uh, out of various holes in the ground. Have you done that? Have you done the, the 4D? No. The um, last... I, I only got it to 4D, I think. I never got straight to 9. So I think the, the extent of uh, is, that I've had... they actually been, have a 9D now? I thought you were being uh, I'm hyperbolic. sure. No, no. I'm almost certain that someone has done a 9D, and it might be Hoyt's, uh, where the chairs move, you get stuff thrown at you in terms of liquids yeah, and, that, and stuff. I'm sure that's and just 4 or something like that. I could have sworn that they'd sort of marketed it oh, as anyway. 90, I, I went and but... saw um, Captain Marvel in the moving chair slash uh. splashing water in your face, um, which is also kind of disappointing as well because there's a big scene at the end where a spaceship crashes into a lake and there's a massive wave of water <laughs> that is splashed up and they didn't splash water in your face. They didn't oh. use that. But they, and they were quite so clearly looking for opportunities to use the technology. Yeah. There's a scene where she's in the aircraft hangar and the camera sort of pans back and it goes up sort of into the ceiling. And as they do that, the chair kind of lifts up and pans back. I'm like, okay, well, we're not actually moving in this scene. Uh. Like the chair's now following the camera uh, motion, which is kind of fun. But uh. like quite obviously like, oh, we don't know what to do in this scene with this shot. We don't want uh, <laughs> animation to play on the seat or whatever. But... Oh, look, you know, it was, it's fine for sort of like a one-off experience, but it's not something that I'd actively want to go and, uh, and see. Unless, yeah, I, you know, uh, uh, the second Avatar came out recently, the, the way of water, maybe that would have been an interesting experience <laughs> with uh, splashing water in your face. Yeah, yeah. I'll just dunk the entire row of chairs into a tank of water and then everyone gets a scuba mask as well. Um, this feels like almost a very movie film studios idea, and I'm almost certain we tried to do this at one point in one of our episodes, but like... There's part of me that wants to see a cinema experience that just goes so far into that like extra dimension, uh, dimensionality kind of realm where like, you know how Foley artists have to do sound effects while they're watching the film, right? So that, you know, yeah. it's in post and they're figuring out the sound effects and they're matching it in time to what they're seeing on screen. Have them there in the cinema live, have the orchestra there live, have a bunch of like people in green suits just throwing liquids and smoke and all sorts of stuff at you at the same time so that you know the screen is no longer the border you're going back to the silent movie era 
Yeah, where exactly. You've got, actually got a pianist in in the thin, yeah, in yeah, the, yeah. the theater with you playing along. Yep. Um, just to, if, if everyone's anyone's watching at home, just checking in. Indiana Jones has just dropped a shotgun shell worth of ball bearings, uh, and it's identified the crate, which is uh, displaying magnetic abilities, <laughs> which I assume it's going to have something. Oh no, their crowbars are getting stuck to the chest. Whatever could be yeah. in this, but I, like, I do like, like it. It, it only yeah, just selective magnetism. On. Yeah. They, what was the other, uh, Fast and Furious Nine? I think has the same thing where they're they're driving a super magnet down the street, and it's just you know some things that are made of uh, ferromagnetic metals are attracted to it, and for some reason, just other ones aren't. It's just you know whatever's <laughs> convenient to the story. Yeah, exactly. It's always it's funny in that because it doesn't isn't there a scene in that film where like the lights sort of all lean towards a certain direction at one point? I mean. If, if you're not watching the film along with me right now, AJ, I'm you not. might as well be, because that's kind of what's happening as they're oh, loading really? this into the back of the truck. Ah, man. It's annoying that I think I've seen that film enough that I remember too much of it. Like, I kind of have that weird encyclopedic memory of the first three films, because I've seen them so many times, and I'm exactly. happy to watch them any time they're around. I mean, we have watched all three of these films in the in the intervening years. This is the last time I watched this in... 2018 2019 whenever it happened to be before we started the podcast Uh. you and i together have watched all three indiana jones films i think raiders and last crusade at least twice definitely a default sort of like if we're doing uh other projects we just sort of put it on in the background and can just enjoy enjoy being around that film because that's Uh. like i mean you've seen it enough times you don't actually need to sit there and pay attention to every line of dialogue yeah but you know when you know, you get to the scene in Last Crusade where the boat's being chopped up by the propeller as it's uh-huh. going into the water. You're like, oh, I yep. kind of like, I forgot how good this scene is, how yep. tense this scene is. Yep. Um, Indy, Indy's yeah. Indy's famous duel with the swordsman and Raiders as well. Uh, it's And then we just kind of pause whatever we're doing and just watch that bit for a second. Uh, sigh in contentment and then go back to what we were doing. I think speaking of that as well, I kind of want to talk about Temple of Doom. Which is always. See, this is. I mean, you go ahead, but for me, this has always been. That was the weakest entry, and I would yeah. always kind of rewatch it just for the like the the sake of the completionist. I'm rewatching the trilogy. Yeah. But in terms of like enjoyment, it always just felt a little bit off yeah. in the current climate. Probably a little bit racially insensitive. Yes. And still phenomenal set pieces like that minecart sequence is fantastic. Uh, absolutely fantastic. In fact, I learned today that. Uh, Ghostbusters 1984 lost the Academy Award uh, for special effects to Temple of Doom. So Temple of Doom uh, beat it out. And I think you'd have to say for that sequence almost specifically, it is the the big special effect set piece. Oh no, Ray Winston is a double agent. But is he? (laughs) It could be a triple agent. I just feel as though I should interject ever so uh, occasionally (laughs) with what's happening in the film. Yeah, Um, I think you should. So yeah, what what were you going to say about Temple of Doom? Well, I was going to say like, it is the maligned, I mean, before um, Crystal Skull came out, it was definitely the more maligned entry in the series for various, very, very correct reasons, I would say. But I mean, you and I watched it recently as well. And we were sort of thinking just as a story exercise, like what we would do to not necessarily fix Temple of Doom, but just to like tweak it. And surprisingly, we wouldn't actually change that much about it. Um, obviously, you've got the character of Willie, who's played by, um, what's her face? I've completely blanked on her name now. Mrs. Spielberg. Miss- <laughs> yes, the future Mrs. Spielberg, uh, who, you know, is is horribly written as a character. 
very much like the tropey damsel in distress. She screams far too frequently spends at most, everything. Yeah, spends most of the film screaming. You've got a, you know, as Isaac mentioned, a couple of like racial sensitivities that would need to be tweaked as well. Overall, the tone is probably a little bit dark. It lacks a little bit of levity. Uh, in but the, I mean, you, you say half. that as well, darker tone, but also significantly more focused on kids, right? Like Ugh. with Short Round being one of the main characters and the fact that uh, the central sort of like mission is to rescue children that have been stolen. Uh. The, the fact that like there's this kind of like almost, and again, I don't really want to compare it to Goonies, probably only doing it <laughs> because of uh, the Short <laughs> Round being in, in both of those. Yeah. But it does have that sort of childy kind of adventure thing to it which yeah. I think is kind of missing a little bit from the other two films. And yet yep. the subject matter of ripping hearts out and um, yeah, all that sort of stuff is, is significantly darker than some of the other things that they go through. It is a bit of a bizarre blend, but there's so many great sequences in that film. Just the, the, like the initial sort of hidden chamber that the um, that short around an indie ender enter um, with all the bugs and then the giant spike collapsing roof that they then kick on like multiple times it's it's such a great fun little gag there the minecart chase as we've mentioned the the water at the end as well the 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 little gag there where indy's shoes are on fire after applying the brakes <laughs> into the minecart and he's water. asking for water and then this huge tunnel of water comes thundering towards them and his tone just changed it's it's fantastic it's a great little set piece there um yeah, I, I still think it's a fun film, and it's. I don't know if. I don't know if it's necessarily getting better with age per se, but it's definitely a throwback to. The kind of films and the kind of effects and the kind of set pieces that they don't really do anymore. Um, you and I have had this discussion about, what I call the Rube Goldbergification of action sequences, where everything is about cause and react and then cause and react and then another react and then another cause and then it, it becomes this sort of weird ballet of synchronized um uh, choreography and the indie films don't tend to have that they usually have like one cause and then one or two effects and then we're on to the next thing um, yeah, and, and it always feels like he's on the back foot he's, he's scraping by through the skin of his teeth yeah. he's not relying on a bizarre set of coincidences to to get him through it. Although, having said this, probably about two minutes ago, he, he dropped a gun on the floor and it shot a Russian guy's toe off and that's what uh, allowed him to escape. I think he may have meant it, but at the same time, it kind of felt like, you know, if that didn't work, then you don't escape and maybe that's a bit too coincidental. A uh, little bit, liking. yeah. But, I mean, you have the opposite end of the spectrum with Tintin, right? The pseudo live-action CGI fest that Spielberg was also in charge of and he did a, a single shot sequence towards the back end of that film in the third act which is just the, this crazy yeah. insane the, it's a car chase sequence where they're going down a series of narrow streets in a moroccan style city trying yeah. to get the scraps of paper and the the who has possession of those scraps of paper keeps changing uh, but in the most like unlikely way where like you know an eagle flies and grabs it and then tintin jumps off a roof and grabs the eagle's feet and then he falls into the car which rolls yeah. down and then snowy jumps and grabs it off him and then it just it felt so improbable and so unlikely and and it, so obviously choreographed that i just didn't didn't it didn't resonate with me it didn't i didn't feel it was at all believable i mean in a cartoony sense it kind of makes sense but the problem with tintin is that it wanted to have its cake and eat it too which was like right we're doing a a style that 
looks like Herge's, is it Herge? Have I got that name right? Herge's original art style, but also they look like actors. They look like real people. So it's like, well, pick a lane. Uh, and that just makes it worse because like, I think that that style of like cause and effect and cause and effect and cause and effect is like, it's Looney Tunes, right? It's Roadrunner and Coyote, you know, Coyote, um, sets up a seesaw, grabs a huge boulder, throws it on the other end of the seesaw and he goes launching up in the air, hits a, a rocky outcrop and gets stuck in there. Then that rocky outcrop breaks off. He falls down back onto the seesaw. The seesaw hits up the original boulder that he threw up. That boulder flies up in the air and then lands on top of him. Like, that's fantastic as visual comedy, but it works great in cartoons. It just doesn't really work in films. And Indy 4 definitely has a couple of those sequences where it's just like, okay, like, this is just Roadrunner and Coyote again. Mm. Would uh, it be perhaps when a klaxon is going off and Indy <laughs> realizes that he's about to be part of a nuclear bomb test? Maybe. That's, uh, that may be the, the part of the film that I'm up to. I have to say, though, having this conversation is very distracting from uh, how bad this film is. I do tend to find myself obviously just listening to you talk rather than paying attention to the film. So maybe maybe I'm See, getting I'm, off a little I'm bit helping light you. here. I'm easing you through the bet. I'm a, I'm a benevolent uh, bet taker or yeah. a bet uh, instigator um it's interesting um i, I kind of want to talk about spielberg and lucas because i remember back in the day when this film was released and particularly the scene coming up which I, is the infamous nuke of the fridge scene i assume it that's is literally everything's catching on fire now he's just pulled himself into the fridge yeah and luckily that fridge is lead lined because yeah that's, um, of course yeah uh and that was one of the the big controversies back in the day on the internet about that particular scene and uh, nuke the fridge became a um, a bit of a meme and I believe that Spielberg took the hit for that because he was emphatic that that was his idea and that he it was nothing to do with Lucas but I, I believe that's not actually the case I think it came out many many years later that no that was actually a Lucas scene um, it just, it, it reeks to me of, again, not to compare, it, I don't really want to uh, be constantly using The Fast and the Furious as examples of bad <laughs> films, but there's this sort of notion that your heroes are unbreakable, mm. uh, that like Vin Diesel can jump off the front of a car at going 120 miles an hour and catch someone else in mid-air, mid-air also traveling towards them at 120 miles an hour and then just land on a car windscreen and be fine. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing with Indy being in a fridge, being even if like the lead lining did prevent him from um, the, the radiation, just the the force of crashing would kill him and yeah. I like irrespective of whether there's you know also fridges have some sort of inertial dampening devices inside them I'm not sure I'm not a fridge <laughs> they, engineer they, they do not they do not alright uh, okay well that that debunks that theory but also it's the same sort of thing with uh, again don't want to again uh, rag on Mad Max Fury Road but there's a couple <laughs> of instances in there where he's strapped to the front of a car and it just crashes and I'm like well you're uh, dead your arms are ripped off like in, in no world are you able to survive this except in the world where your um, main characters are actually secretly uh, unbreakable style superheroes <laughs> who just, you know, I, I do actually kind of feel like Fast and Furious is heading down that road where the characters will learn that they're invincible and start doing more and more improbable things because they themselves in the film universe realize they can't but, actually die. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think that with 
the difference between Mad Max and, and Fast and Furious, I would say, and I guess maybe you, I, you could probably argue against this for sure, but Fast and the Furious kind of started off as one thing and they've kept a very consistent universe. Like it is meant to be the exact same, the, it's the exact same characters and they just evolve over time. So the, fa- the first film was literally about street racing in America. The first film is point break with cars. Yeah. It is a genuinely really, really good um, uh, buddy cop uh, undercover. Like it's just, a, it is, you go back and watch it and like how have they got to the point where they are now based on this starting point? Yeah. Like n- number two then becomes like, oh, let's make this all cool and in Miami with lots of Lamborghinis and it's uh, more about all the girls. It's still fundamentally grounded in reality. Uh-huh. Uh, three is Tokyo Drift, <laughs> which is its own kettle of fish. They couldn't get any of the original cast back and they do their own yeah. thing in Japan. And then four is where it sort of starts becoming, um, uh, I mean, yeah, four is a bad film also five is when they suck they, they they really go we don't care anymore if you, yeah. you want to drag a uh 20 ton safe through the streets of brazil and use that as like a nunchuck and knock other cars off the road <laughs> we don't care we really don't care we're doing whatever it's called <laughs> and to be fair at that point the franchise wasn't making that much money uh, i know the the cinema like i was talking about earlier that i have a membership didn't even bother showing Fast Five. They didn't go. Uh, they they didn't think it was going to sell enough tickets. They didn't get a, a yeah, screening, yeah. or a, so you would have to go to one of the larger chains because at that point no one had any faith in the film. Yeah. And the moment they went, all right, we're just going to be stupid. We're just going to be silly. We're just going to do whatever we want. People latched onto it, and it became yeah. this massive thing. I think it's, it is one of the highest grossing film franchise ever. Yeah. Because and and again, people know that it's silly and it's stupid, and they'll do crazy whatever you want because that's that's what sells tickets. See, here's the thing: when you get to the fourth film in a franchise, that's what I call the direct-to-video precipice. So that's where, in a lot of established film series, if they are making a fourth film and it usually is being made very quickly after the third film, you are met with the direct-to-video precipice. Think about like the Mummy films, right? They made three of those. Sorry, or even the Scorpion King. They made a couple of those, went to cinema. All the other ones after that, straight to video, straight to DVD. Uh, I don't know if Scorpion King 2 made it to cinema. It possibly didn't. But anyway, there's a... There's, the, if you think of M- it as Mummy being, 3, Tomb of the Dragon King or whatever it was. I do this, remember being out at the cinema when I was a projectionist there, but I don't remember seeing Scorpion 2. The Scorpion King is the fourth film of the Mummy franchise. The fifth film, direct to video. Uh, I think the Scorpion King actually came out after Mummy Two and before Mummy Three. Oh, there you go. It's still either way. Yeah, there is a precipice way. there, and I think that's where the Fast and the Furious films were sort of heading because you already had in the third film where none of the original cast were back. That's usually like the pattern, right? You you establish a film series, the sequel comes around. It's probably not quite as good as the first, but still makes enough money to justify a third one. The third one comes around, you're starting to see that the cast is being substituted out, that a couple of the cast members didn't want to come back to reprise their characters, so they either write those characters out or they're recast. Then you get to the fourth film, and it's like, hmm, this is the precipice. Are we going to do direct-to-video and just get this out the door? Um, And I feel like that's where Fast and the Furious was going, right? It it is one of the few that has managed to turn it around, right? Yeah. up until I actually couldn't even point it there's somewhere in the mid 90s where it was just kind of assumed if you're doing a film series it's a trilogy you do three yeah. and then and then you're out um, I think 
the mentality more nowadays is we do it until it stops making money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a lot of cases, you know, you it's just that you can see the diminishing returns on the box office. As soon as the uh, box office returns are less than the uh, budget of the film, yep. then that's when the franchise dies. Correct. Uh, but Fast and the Furious, like, it really pulled this trick where you it, it was going down 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 till uh four and five and then suddenly had this big sort of like uptick and i just i don't know where they've managed to pull that from because i don't think the films have got any better but they have seemed to get a, a significantly more popular so i think they've gotten consistent they know what they want to do with those films and that is just to be completely off the wall yeah and nuts. to, to and do it, something crazier bigger badder than yeah. the one before i know in Fast 9, I haven't seen the most recent one. Fast X came out a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, it's awful. It's probably going to make half a billion dollars at the box office in its opening weekend. Yep. Um, I know with uh, the, the one previously, the one of the plot elements was literally something suggested by the director's like six-year-old kid, which is like, <laughs> they should go into... You should have a car in space. And, and they're just like, oh, yeah, let's do that. We can make that happen. But why not? I mean, that was the whole basis of movie film studios as well, which is just like, well, this wh- is, this whatever is the people what- want. This is what is even crazier. And again, we've, we've taken our movie producer hats off and we're just having a candid conversation. I'm surprised, looking back at our catalogue of movie Ugh. ideas, just how many of them... And we're, we were trying to, when we're coming up with them, be as absurd as possible, come up with uh, stupid ideas. There is no wrong idea. Every idea is a suggestion and you keep pushing forward and you keep going down that road. Yeah. Some of them would fly. Some of them would genuinely be great yeah. films in the current yeah. mood. Like, we were trying to be stupid. We were trying to be ridiculous. I'm like, these are actually kind of good film ideas. Yeah. I wouldn't mind actually yeah. watching these. There was definitely a couple in there that we made uh, that not only were they, like, would work in the current context or in the current film environment, but were just, like, genuinely not, like, satirical or funny films. They're like, oh, this is actually genuinely a really good idea. Um and I don't, yeah, I don't mean like good idea in the sense of like people will just take any kind of wacky stuff nowadays and they'll enjoy it. But like, I don't know, this would be like a, an actually a good serious film, um, which is kind of annoying because we still, we made no money off the podcast and we've made no <laughs> money off any of the stories or ideas that we've come up with. But hey, the future is long, I say. <laughs> I am I have been tempted a couple of times to go, what would happen if I actually sit down and try and write one of my favorite ones is uh eine kleine nachtmörder which is um <laughs> yeah it's sort of the telling of the amadeus mozart story where but yep. uh mozart is a serial killer uh-huh. who's trying to build a piano out of uh, human bones uh-huh. and salieri is like the detective who's trying to chase him down i think that's kind of wacky enough that you could probably do that as a, a an actual kind of semi-serious horror thriller yep. uh, film Yep. Uh, the, one of the ones that I really enjoyed was our, um, I can't even remember what it was called, but we basically um, suggested that NASA funds their um, subsequent space missions by creating or selling the technology that they invented for the previous space mission because the the pop culture um, idea was that, you know, Velcro was created by NASA and then it became this product after they used it on a space mission. Um, so I had this kind of like Coen Brothers-esque screwball comedy where, you know, NASA has a whole division set aside for just marketing and for developing a product based on what they used in the last mission. And it just follows a story of how this um, marketing team is struggling to come up with some kind of product to sell after the failure of a previous mission, um, which I just think is... 
it, they're still good premises. a great idea. They're genuinely good premises. Mm. One day. I'll get around to writing it one day. So, I mean, it kind of almost begs the question, and this is something that you and I haven't really ever talked about before, oh. but why did we stop recording the podcast? What were the, the factors involved in... Because it was pre-COVID, right? We it was pre-COVID, stopped recording yeah. 20... Is it October 2019? Yeah. was our, our last release. We do have an episode in the can, one that we recorded but never never actually released. It's in the, the hidden archives. But, uh, yeah, yep. I don't really remember exactly what the inciting factor was that sort of stopped us from from sitting down each week and, and recording. I mean, I think I do, and I think it was just... we. So we used to have a schedule set up. We'd record once a week. I'd go over to Isaac's house. We'd do it live. Um, it was a good three hours of time just doing the recording and, and doing all that and then travel time back from there. Um, but I think at the time, that was when my sort of father got quite unwell um and the idea of doing comedy at that time was just not something i wanted to do it just didn't feel right it didn't it didn't um i just wasn't feeling it at all um and it's the same for because we also did improv we met doing learning improv like most millennials do these days apparently (laughs) i actually i want to talk about that as a thing later on about how improv is just this really easy joke about millennials but anyway um you know we were doing live shows and having fun um but other priorities came up you needed to work on stuff to secure a financial future for yourself um i had my father who was not well um and actually in the years since we did the the podcast he did pass away as well um but I think that's kind of why we stopped doing it. Like it just, yeah. Life. Kind I mean, of took I, over. I understood the the time sink for you was is pretty huge. Just because obviously we were recording for an hour. Um, there's probably about you know thirty to forty minutes of setup time, and then just even after we record. Sorry, just to interrupt myself. Uh, Shia LaBeouf and a bunch of greasers are getting to a fight at a, a cafe. Yeah, uh, we're getting some some nice fifties rock and roll as they smash chairs but, over but each other. But what follows is actually a night is a okay chase sequence aside from a couple bad. of moments a couple of moments um, are pretty bad but yeah so and then obviously we would wrap up and then just keep talking because we just like loved talking about film yeah. and so it'd be another hour before you left and then you know it's an hour back and forth so it's like on, I think it was a it's Monday a night that we were doing on it a significant chunk of your time that is the oh. entire Monday evening and that burden's all on you and then you edited the podcast as well I so was that's doing like post on it, yeah. another another you know hour or two of actually scrubbing through and, and cutting it all together mm-hmm. um yeah, just sort of, and like you're saying, just, you know, you had significant life events uh, there. I know there was sort of a point there where we were trying to move into live improv performances. We had a couple of, we'd done a couple of shows, I think, at the end of 2019, and we're uh. looking at doing com- comedy festivals there. Um, obviously, COVID cancelled pretty much everything that was happening in 2020. COVID um, did, yeah. But yeah, it just it sort of became this thing that, you know, as much fun as it was to do, just, you know, your life priorities have to take a backseat. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think that that's, that's the way it is, right? I mean, I was never interested in, like, being famous or, like, doing comedy stuff for a living. It's not really... It's just fun. I enjoy doing it. And part of the sort of legacy that my father left me was that he had a very... um, He had a big sense of humour and a lot of where my own comedy sensibilities come from is influenced by 
him and the films that he was watching. You know, he introduced me to Looney Tunes, to the Marx Brothers, to Monty Python, to, and, you know, probably not appropriate nowadays, but stuff like what Paul Hogan was doing back in the 80s and so on and so forth. And the my sense of humor evolved from there as well. So nowadays I, like, I miss it. I miss doing comedy stuff i miss doing this podcast i always enjoyed recording the podcast it was always fun yeah uh and it was always just a a fantastic kind of creative outlet um and i think going back to that idea that like millennials just do an improv course and it's like haha look at them being millennially um good improv is a fantastic form of entertainment i don't care what anyone says i i laugh the most at good improv bad improv is the worst thing in the world oh, absolutely. I, it's i <laughs> that's it's, that's the the worst thing about it is that it does teeter on a knife's edge where it really does uh, it's it's just so magical when it works uh-huh. but uh it is a very rare skill to for people to be able to do well yeah and the fact that so many people are doing it uh and not all of them fantastically is uh yeah, yeah. it's a problem yeah and i think because like you and you and i always had a great chemistry live I, as well i felt as though you know this is this is a thing where improv's difficult when you're doing it with people that you've never done it before yeah but when you are sorry just a wilhelm scream just there uh, as <laughs> as shia labeouf skids his motorcycle underneath many a library table uh, yeah, sorry okay. to interrupt That's- um because it, it is so much about trying to support the people around you. And if there's not a, a sense of trust there uh. and you don't know that your partner always has your back then yeah you can be a bit tentative and timid and i think that's where bad improv comes from is where you're not sort of like just following your gut but when like you you know that you're in a scene with someone who's going to support your ideas who's going to build your ideas and if you're failing they'll pick you up and if uh you know Uh, they're failing you can pick them up it just it it works so much better i think you know we realized pretty early on when we were doing um improv that we had a very similar sensibility and then we could always rely on each other to to work that way and that's what's what i always really liked about the performing with you is that mm. um i yeah i just knew you always had you were always there to support any idea that you had and if you put an idea forward i'm like I, i'm gonna roll with this this is uh, i'm gonna pick this and, yeah and, and that, try and take it to the next level it very much is a trust thing too i hadn't actually thought of it in that way before um because i can there's there's definitely i've remembered doing scenes with certain people where i was trying to do something different and usually what a lot of people tend to do in improv, particularly when they're starting off, is that they'll throw everything at the wall. They'll come up with some kind of, like, insane madcap character because the idea of, like, doing something insane and madcap is much more comfortable for people because you can just throw everything out there. To do subtlety, to do a quiet, slow-paced kind of character... I think for a lot of people feels dangerous because you're like, well, what do I turn to after that? What am I, what well can I dig for content with a character that is so laborious or so um, timid? And some of my favorite scenes with you were just like where I'd introduce an incredibly slow character uh, and you would match that. We did like old lighthouse keepers once. And yeah, so that was that was a, a specific course that we did together, which was two person mm. improv. And one of the the most useful lessons we took out of that was using silence, uh, like to build tension, to build character. Because 
when you're on stage doing improv, you feel as though you do need to fill the silence to fill that void as much as possible. But you can just have two people sitting next to each other quietly on stage and you use that sort of silence as a sense of anticipation. Uh, um, it was, yeah, a really good lesson. One of my the fa- one of my favorite sort of introductory scenes that we've done together is just yeah, just two people just sitting in yeah. silence. And I remember trying to do that with other people that weren't you, and they would come in and go with a completely opposite character as a form of like trying to manufacture contrast right or trying to manufacture humor out of the contrast between a character who is slow and and not doing much and a character who's like zipping all around the place and uh has a completely different energy and that can work in certain contexts but also it makes it a lot harder for both people as well because you're not bouncing off each other at that point you kind of have to try and match energy levels and it's so difficult to do and yeah, I always found that, like, if I put a slow character out there with you, you'd be like, okay, I can see where he's going here. We're going to pull from, like, our knowledge of films. And, okay, this seems like a, a kind of noir piece or this is, like, a, an intense drama kind of piece. So it doesn't need a zany character. It needs serious characters to be serious and the humor will just come naturally. Um, and I always like that about it. And as I said, like, good improv does that. Good improv is not about manufacturing jokes and trying to make people laugh it's about being inside characters and just letting them be characters and seeing what happens in the situations that they're in and those are the best scenes to me like those are the things that just make me laugh because it's so left of field sometimes what comes out of those situations and those characters um so yeah i do miss it i do miss doing the podcast i do miss performing um it's a it's it's a tough thing to get back into, I think, because uh, you do have to throw time at it and trying to find places to yeah. perform. And like, I don't like the scene particularly well either. There isn't a lot of space for long form two person improv in uh. anywhere really. If you want to be a stand up comedian, you could probably four or five nights a week find a ten or fifteen minute slot, or you know five minutes where you can you can go, you can test out your, your jokes, you can refine your uh, material, and then you can perform and uh. build build a following with improv especially the type of improv we were doing, which was uh, like a two-person hour-long or, you know, 45 minutes to an hour-long scene oh. um, trying to, you know, tell a story in that time. You just can't get stage time for that. And if you can't get stage time, you can't build uh, experience and you can't build uh, a following. Yep. And, you know, when it's the same 10 friends that are coming to all of your shows every time <laughs> that you perform, uh, yeah. you know... It gets, it gets it, a bit it, awkward taking their money, like, over and over and over again. So, uh but again, like it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't really care about the payment. I'd do it for free. But it's also one of those things where like a lot of people have turned to social media. They'll go and do stuff on TikTok or YouTube or so on and so forth. But it's honestly one of those kind of formats which works so much better live with an audience in front of you. Like I've seen excellent improvisers do televised stuff and the televised stuff is nowhere near as good for some reason. And I don't know why. There's just something about the the feeling of the energy in the room. I that, think it is a is a feedback thing where you yeah. you get a sense of what is and isn't working based on the reaction of the audience, and uh, that um, subtly uh, is like a a compass that's guiding you towards the things that they are enjoying more. Yeah. When you don't have that feedback, you kind of you know you don't have that you know barometer of which direction to take. It's a, uh, it's a more it's a more interesting relationship with the audience, I would say, than stand up. 
Because I think with stand-up, like, you've got pre-prepared material. You may be able to choose from that material if certain things are landing and certain things aren't, but you can't necessarily be subtly influenced by what the audience is giving back to you and inject that into the stuff that you're doing, not in any kind of, like, intricate way. And I think that... I mean, yeah, you do see really, really good experienced comedians can do that, but more often than not, the feedback that you're getting is something that you're going to uh, uh, use to influence your next show. Yeah, you realize exactly. the, this wording of the joke didn't work. I'm going to rephrase it for the next time I do the joke. Or yep. the, this material landed really well. I'm going to extend that bit out and try and get some more laughs out of it next yep. time. Whereas yep. improv is very much like, no, this this performance and these jokes are for you here right now. Yep. Um, this is the only audience that's ever going to experience it. And so you need to use this audience to to, to guide where this is going. So Yeah. One of the interesting things that I found doing it as well is... is almost leading them on a on a path as well because you might do something and not get a laugh out of it because it's not necessarily a joke but through repetition that laugh builds over time and again it's a really unique relationship that you have with an audience to be able to do that to be able to like feel it and almost just slightly mess with them a little bit by bringing it back until it gets a laugh um, or like just it just becomes funny over time. It's such a weird, uh, almost ethereal experience, which I know sounds very I was wanky. thinking about this this morning, actually, uh, and I realized that I would almost kind of make, more, like I liked it more if I could just make two people in the audience laugh versus making the entire room laugh. Yeah. But sort of maybe more making two people laugh with a joke that I thought was funny versus making everybody laugh with a joke that I think is much broader. Right. I remember we, we did a scene once where I was an amoeba and halfway through the scene, I split into and grabbed someone else and then split into two separate things. And we were kind of like two amoeba dude bros. And I quite liked that idea. And yeah. only one person in the audience laughed. And I'm like, that's all I need. Yeah. Legitimately, I did something that I thought was kind of both sort of like highbrow in there talking about the, you know, mitosis of cells. And yeah. also super lowbrow by being very dude bro-y with this like, you know, amoeba that had split off. And I'm like, like didn't need to be for everyone. Actually, I thought yeah. it was funny. One other person thought it was funny. Made my day. <laughs> okay. No, look, I totally get it. But again, it's I think it's one of those things where like, you can play those kind of experiences and it's okay. And you can also yeah. go for the broad laughs as well. And that's also okay. It's very flexible, but you know, improv is now the punchline of every like late night comedians, uh, stand up routine. Yeah. About how... Get, getting invited to your friend's improv show as being like yeah. a shorthand for a form of, to, uh, type of torture. Yeah. We're about to do some martial arts in a pit with some guys wearing masks, sort of like a capoeira kind of thing. Ah, uh, um, this is the yeah okay. Which the like I mean, natives? not a bad fight sequence, just completely unnecessary. Doesn't add to the plot. I don't know why these people are here. Um, yeah, also, again, when, not going to complain when, about the film though. Just thought I'd check there? in. How long have they been there for? Because they're all like blended into the wall, aren't they? Yeah, and they jump in and out of holes. One of them's just sort of blow dart, which has hit the um, handle of a shovel. Luckily, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they like we never ex- like yeah. yeah. No one it, ever. It's, just, it's not a good film. It's it, oh, yeah. it, it oh, just oh, takes these Jesus. Little... Sorry, Indian just popped popped up, grabbed the end of the blow dart gun and blew the dart back into the back, guy's yeah, face. That's right. But the issue with like blow darts is that one end of them is padded yeah. to create an air seal yeah. and he shot the padded end back into the guy's throat and yet somehow that's killed him. 
Better. It's stuck into the back of the roof of his mouth and it's killed him. Uh, these are like six-year-old ideas. This is like the, the fast uh, the fast 10 <laughs> movie executive, the six-year-old kid who's suggesting ideas. Because it is that, right? It's just like, oh, what if you blow the... It's, like, it's 100% coyote. This is It's exactly the same as when Bugs Bunny used to take the barrel of a gun, turn it around, like literally pick up the barrel of the gun, switch it around so that the like bullet end was facing the shooter. And the shooter would fly and the bullet would come out of that end. Doesn't make any sense. So so the one that annoyed me the most is when Road like Wiley e. Cody would like draw a tunnel on a rock. Oh, yeah. And and it's like, aha, the Wiley e. uh, the Roadrunner's gonna run at this thinking that it's a tunnel and smash into it and then I'll get it. And then somehow Roadrunner runs through it as if it's a real tunnel uh, and gets out the other side, and then when Wiley e. Cody tries to follow, Wiley then runs into, into the rock. rock. Yeah. And I'm like, No, <laughs> this is not fair. Like, it, it was interesting, yeah, because I always thought that the best the best coyote ones were always the ones that like felt like they could work and just for some yeah, reason didn't. For some reason, uh, but this is no uh, Roadrunner gets to break the rules of physics, yeah, um, to just as a way of taunting yeah. Wiley Cody. I just I, that that one really frustrated me. Yeah, we I can forgive that because it is a cartoon, and you know you've got that sense of like lunacy and. Um, surrealism I guess it works but yeah my favourite ones were always the ones that seemed like they were kind of plausible and then what I've been toying around with like wanting to do an essay about the very first Roadrunner and Coyote film Um, sorry to interrupt we've just had uh, our Scorpion moment where Shia LaBeouf uh, just got stung by scorpions and then covered by CG scorpions just nowhere near as like gut-wrenching as actual bugs like yeah. baskets full of bugs or rats or and stuff snakes, like that, that they used in yeah. the previous one is a quite clearly just like cg things that are running up his arm yeah. although to be fair i thought there was going to be more bugs in this oh the hit, one guy gets eaten by ants later on doesn't he yeah there are uh, bugs in this yeah so this is this is more of the um the uh sequence in raiders where there's tarantulas on his back rather than the you know the sequence where the the animals actually come and play yeah. a, a bigger gross out role it is, it's cartoony, right? And I think that the discussions we've already had in this episode right now are all about when film series diverge from where they started and become cartoons, they either, you can either accept that or they are just so distracting as sequences or as um, scenes that it's just not enjoyable. And that's what happened with indie. The first three indie films are grounded in a sense of reality. They are fantastical. They're not things that you're all going to stumble upon in real life, but they're real snakes in a pit. They're real bugs in a in a hidden chamber. They're real rat, well, mechanical rats, but like they're real rats in a sewer. This is like the ant thing in particular. So it's like, well, but like ants it don't do this. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Like what, how, why is this film filled, filled with so many cartoony events? You've just um, reminded me of something I was thinking about with the end of Last Crusade, which um, uh, is that uh, the knight at the end, he's a wizard, right? He has to be. Sure. When you, th- when you think about it, like he and his brothers yep. um, took the grail into a cave. Yeah. Then then somehow like made hundreds of other cups that instantly <laughs> age people. They, they built a seal and put it in the ground such that if you take the grail past that, the entire cavern falls down and the yeah. aging potion stops working. That's yeah. not part of the Holy Grail myth. This is something that they did. 
It's not like they carried true, the seal actually, with yeah. them. They and then they, they also created discover all of this. Yeah, they created an invisible bridge that, like, yeah. Uh, so, like, this is this is their like. I, I'm sitting there going, yeah, okay, the the cup's magic, but. So are the knights. They're wizards. <laughs> and they're also kind of weird wizards. Who, who sits yeah. there and makes hundreds and hundreds of cups that if you drink out of them will yeah. instantly like age people a hundred years. Yeah. That's a weird thing to do. And yeah. he expects Indiana Jones to take over. Like Also, the, the seal. like b- Building that seal that if you walk past it, the aging, the, the power of the grail stops working. Why would you do that? Yeah. Why, yeah, exactly. Why, why did the knight do that? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But also, the knight would also look a lot older. Isn't he like a thousand years old or something in the film? Uh, I look. I, I think the Crusades are about the eleven and twelve hundreds, and the film set in the nineteen forties. So he'd be about yeah. you know, six to eight hundred years old. Yeah. He's also supposed to be French, isn't he? I thought they were two French knights. Again, I, I probably should have rewatched the scene to to figure it out. But yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think actually over time you just develop an English accent naturally. That's just one of those. <laughs> Unless you're um, Sean Connery and your Scottish accent just gets more and more pronounced over time, no matter what character you're playing. I actually kind of wonder, do you think all of the cups there actually age people a uh, hundred years? Or do you think other other cups there just do other weird and wacky things? He just got bored. But, He's okay, like, so here's, but here's the thing. Like, even those cups that age people, right? Surely the knight that has been taking, like, I don't understand because his age seems to be just capped at about 80, even though he's like 60, 600 years old. So shouldn't he physically have still been, like, his body should still have been aging for 600 years? So shouldn't he have looked like something Maybe. like what Donovan looks like by the end? But, but you know, we, we saw the, the healing power of the cup can reverse wounds, right? So, like, they literally yeah. just pour it onto Sean Connery's stomach and the wounds close over. So maybe it's, you know, it's helping... So if the, the, the aging process occurs when the telomere uh, in your cells get shorter and shorter and shorter, maybe it just slows that process right down. Um, I, guess, I, I guess so, but that's a lot of slowing down. A lot of slowing down. Because they also talk, when Donovan's talking about the... Um, his brothers sort of came out of the desert 400 years later or whatever and died of extreme old age. Yeah. Do you, like, so, uh, yeah, I wonder what happened there, why they decided to eventually leave yeah. the cave and stop. Like, Because essentially what they did, they took a holy grail, which gave them eternal life. They went into yeah. a cave. They built a seal, which <laughs> stopped it from working, and then left so that they could die. <laughs> It's kind of actually, a, now that you think, like, it's actually a very interesting story. Maybe they got they got yeah. so tired of living forever that they actively went and tried to find a way to counteract what was essentially a curse for them. It's yeah. like, we need, to, we need to stop this curse. I don't want to actually live forever. Let's yeah. build a seal which stops that from happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then one of the brothers is like, actually, I can't, I have to, I have to stay here and protect the yeah. grail to stop other people. Because the grail, the grail then is a curse, right? They don't actually see it as a benefit. The yeah. cup of everlasting life is something that they're trying to stop other people from getting their hands on, and they're but, trying to limit the effects of. I mean, they are they are they trying to stop it though? Because aren't they more like trying to figure out who the? I mean, I guess they're trying to figure out who the next people to yeah, take over. Yeah, the next person who's protecting it. They, they've, it. Yeah. they've created this tiny little pocket in a temple in the Canyon of the Crescent Moon. Yeah, uh, and that's the only place that this artifact has any value at all. It's the only yeah. place that it can actually affect anything. Yeah. So, like, if you really think about it, it's it's a very useless artifact. Oh, absolutely. 
It only works but, but, at a very certain place. But it, it is rendered completely useless by these three knights. So yeah. that you would go, why did they do that? Why did they do this to this this incredibly powerful artifact? And there yeah. must be they must have drunk from it, become immortal, and realized the curse of immortality. Just gone or, oh, shit. Or yeah, yeah. Or, or like the I think that's an interesting story to tell. The the three brothers, maybe there's someone who's trying to get their hands on it for yeah. evil purposes and they're like no we have to we actually have to contain this we're artifact kind of sac- sacrificing ourselves for the greater to contain good. an artifact that yeah. would be too powerful if it was in the wrong hands that's right yeah there you go well i mean yeah i like that idea i like that justification for the knights the knights of the tomb ah oh, such a great film and the way that film ends as well is just so perfect but so that's a way of, of staying incredibly true to the um the fundamental uh, themes and and tone of a franchise, but just yeah. adding in a unique element which changes uh, character relationships and dynamics. And so, all you need to do is go Indian his dad. That's that's it. it's a buddy cop thing with Indian his dad. We're still going to do the Indiana Jones thing, but we are just adding a uh, a contrasting element to that journey. Yeah, um, and it works really well. I, having said that, I'm just watching Indiana Jones and Shia LaBeouf. Um, uh, find a crystal skull and theoretically they should be contrasting elements on a typical indiana jones journey and yet somehow it doesn't work at all i don't yeah it's interesting but they're also not contrasting i suppose now that you think about it it's indiana jones and young kid who is kind of like a indiana jones type anyway if if he if he wasn't cool imagine he was like a, a bumbling nerd kind of like his dad was yeah would that would that be a better story i'm not sure i think so because you fundamentally are kind of having to change indiana jones's character at this point right because you're turning him into a crotchety dad which he yeah. never was like the core of his character was never crotchety dad it was adventurer in over his head yeah exactly so it doesn't really work with... It doesn't contrast well for, with Shia LaBeouf's character, which is just hard-headed. We... Greaser. I don't think we ever talked about it on the podcast, but we had a pitch for a, what we thought would have been a better Crystal Skull film, yeah. which was uh, Indiana Jones actually has two kids. He has a daughter who yep. is a museum curator and has followed <laughs> that aspect of her, her father um, through the, you know, the academia side of things, and a son who is a secret agent. Who is, yeah. um, and you know, potentially there is some artifact that's discovered where both he, both of his kids get involved in trying to um, ascertain it, and then he's forced along the the journey uh, because of yeah. that. And you, you you still have that parental father and child kind of thing happening, uh, but the the children are the two sides of his own personality sort of split off, which I always thought was yeah. a really good idea. And the fun thing is that adventure over in over his head still makes sense. Because yeah. you're dealing with your own kids, and that situation, he is theoretically in over his own head, trying Although, to like having juggle said that, these two. I kind of now realise that's sort of similar to the plot of Die Hard Five, where Bruce Willis's <laughs> son, played by Jai Courtney, is a secret agent, and yeah. he gets pulled into that sort of plot. Um, the other sort of a half interesting pitch that we, uh, I'm not sure if it was you and I came up with, but we discussed, yeah. um, Indiana Jones's catchphrase of "It belongs in a museum." Yeah. It sort of doesn't really work in the current climate of you know the um, Western cultures going into these uh, yeah. other cultures and stealing their artifacts. Okay. I quite liked the idea that it was like a reverse heist where he was trying to break into a museum to yeah. steal the artifact to give back to the culture that it had been taken from. Yeah, because um, I mean, and- he kind of does that in Temple of Doom, doesn't he? He gets this uh, the Sankara stones and he has always made the decision that he's not going to keep it, that he's going to give it back to the village 
even though he recognizes how valuable they are as an artifact. Um, so that yeah. is a not. Yeah, but, that I mean, would be to be a, fair, like the, the fun... opening sequence of Raiders is literally him breaking into true, a yeah. native, uh, I assume South American uh, tomb and stealing one of their artifacts yeah. because he believes that it should be in a museum. Yeah. Um, whereas you know it'd be interesting to to do the other thing where he's breaking into the museum to return artifacts to the the native cultures would be an, an interesting take. But I mean, that arc is almost there in those three films anyway, right? Because Indy starts off just wanting the fertility idol in uh, Raiders. And by the time he gets to Last Crusade, where he's still feeling that, like, he needs to have this artifact. And you can, you know, he can justify by saying it needs to be in a museum, blah, 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 blah. But really, what it is, is he wants it. Like, he wants this object. Yeah. And then he I think he, he wants to, to complete the mission more than anything else. The, the, yeah. the ascertaining of the object is the completion of the mission. Right. Um, and, and he can't stop until it's done. There's um, Again, we haven't recorded in four years, so I'm not sure if it was a conversation that we've had before. But <laughs> there is the argument that um, if you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazis kill themselves if Indiana Jones isn't there, right? If they're, yeah. if he, if he he's not involved in the story at all, they get it's the Ark, so, yeah. they take it to the island, they open it up, they melt their faces off, and he he has almost zero bearing on the eventual outcome of the story. But yeah. then... Like that, I, I've heard that argument. You're, whoever said it is not wrong, but I think that's not the point. The point is that despite how difficult the odds are and despite what the outcome could or couldn't be, Indiana Jones has no choice but to try and do the right thing. He yep. has to try and fight with all of his power, with all of his energy and effort to stop the forces of evil prevailing. Doesn't matter yep. what the eventual outcome is, he can't control himself. He has to keep doing that. And that's what makes him heroic. The, right. Irrespective of the damage to himself, irrespective of the outcome, he keeps fighting. Um, and yep. so I think the argument of the, if he wasn't involved, then it would have happened anyway. He doesn't know that. And so I think that's why that argument isn't as strong as, you know, No, I don't think it's a good argument. And honestly, I think it makes the story a little bit stronger by saying that the whole idea of, like, exceptionalism as a hero... John Hurt was in this film. Literally forgot. Oh, he's got some spinny Vivozela bamboo stick. Oh, dear God, I'm not looking. There's (laughs) there's too many characters in that film. Um, But just going back to what I was saying there, that the idea of a hero always goes down to this idea of exceptionalism and that you could if you're a hero you're so exceptional that you are the center point and focus of a story and a story lives and dies based on your actions and your actions alone it 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 ties it into a, a narrative trap whereby like you can't have anything that really contrasts with that because at the end of the day the hero always has to make the saving decision and make all the choices and do all the things that only he can do but raiders doesn't necessarily have that he's not in the grand scheme of like the plot he's not actually needed but it's more of an exploration of like what a hero does and why they do it more so than like his actions directly needing to be there to drive the story along um so it's a little bit more intelligent i would say and the other two films don't necessarily don't necessarily do that either Although, having said that, Last Crusade would still end up the way that it does end up. Yeah, they would try and take the Grail past the seal, the temple would collapse, and everyone would fall into a hole. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I think Temple of Doom is probably the only film where he is needed as a hero. That's true. I think I think um, the the cult, um, the Foggy cult, uh, survives without yeah. him being there to stop it. Exactly. So, oh, yeah, all those children would have been... Um, 
enslaved for forever and uh yeah the thuggies would have probably taken over the world mm. so good job indy it is kind of weird so in the movie at the moment indiana jones is strapped to a chair looking into the crystal skull and i think kate blanchett in her passable but probably quite bad russian accent is explaining <laughs> how the russian army is using psionics and psychic ability and I, I don't really buy into like, the, the 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 other three films are quasi religious, right? It, it uses yep. um, the uh, Old Testament, um, which is you know uh, Christian and and Judaism idea of uh, the commandments given by God. The uh, Temple of Doom uses the um, uh, Hindu cult with um, Shiva and the you know the the creation uh, myths in that culture, and then. Finally, in uh, Last Crusade, it is very much the Christianity, the cup of Christ, the Holy Grail. It's, it's like I can sort of buy into quasi-religious stuff as being semi-mystical. But in this hey. one, like um, being psychic and aliens and parallel dimensions doesn't follow the same mold. Um, maybe they are trying to be uh, more respectful to, to pe- people's sort of like sincerely held religious beliefs and doctrine but this kind of just feels so in a weird way it almost feels like they're trying to make it more realistic like to try and justify the the let's just say the magic because it effectively is magic in the first three films this feels like they're trying to make more of a serious justification as to why this magic exists i feel as though they're trying to justify yeah non-religious mysticism in the same way that they used the other films to to make concrete examples of yeah. religious beliefs. And I think, I don't know, again, I don't particularly like being an atheist, don't particularly care about the the religious stuff itself, but no. also uh, also don't believe in the, the mystical crystal skulls, healing power of crystals. Um, and that, But the fact that they're, you know, they're lumped in together, it just feels, it feels strange <laughs> that they didn't, didn't try and pick like another um, aspect from a world religion to... to go hey you know these sincerely held beliefs and 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 doctrines are actually in some way somewhat real in a weird way and now we have marion coming in uh marion ravenwood that's interesting that's like that's like two-thirds into the film now and they're introducing basically another character and and literally like john hurt uh almost exactly an hour so an hour and four minutes into a two-hour and two-minute film um it's weird and again, Indiana Jones has never been like a Bond girl kind of thing where each mm. movie is a... like he, It obviously was. Like you had three different women in each of the three different films. Okay. So in that way, there was this sort of like Bond element of there is, you know, the ultimate reward at the end of the movie is that the hero gets the girl or whatever um, that sort of old trope happens to be. Also kind of feels weird in this one just sort of going, okay, well now it's the one from the first one. It'd be It'd be weird if like again trying to remember bond girls names if, if pussy galore showed up in like casino royale <laughs> or something like that and i'm um, like oh yes i'm the bond girl from the the first film remember me and we're doing fan service by tying that into the uh into this storyline well i mean they did that with a car the aston martin db5 makes an appearance in casino royale and in skyfall and so on and that's meant to sort of i mean particularly skyfall is a direct throwback to goldfinger because he's using the same car, it's got the same gadgets, it's got the ejector seat thing that they both make reference to. So that is that was actually kind of that moment right there, which is just like, it's just like, why is that there? <laughs> like, does that mean that 
Sean Connery's in this universe and that his version of Bond existed and that, I don't know, they made a weird justification for like the universe being connected or these films being connected in some way. And yeah. even like George well, Lazenby's that- film does that too. Yeah, yeah, well, George Lazenby turns to the camera and says, this wouldn't have happened to the last guy. And you're like, yeah. what? What is <laughs> a weird, weird acknowledgement of both you being in a film and also that you are aware that there was a previous guy who was James Bond? Yeah, um, who then came back. So, again, was did George Lazenby just, his Bond just retired at some point? And, very strange. Anyway, it's, it, it's I mean, odd. Obviously, in the intervening years since we've recorded, the, the final Daniel Craig Bond has come out. Um, that's a very interesting way that they've handled that franchise because in, in um, previous iterations obviously with the exception of uh, the um, the George Lazenby acknowledging it the, the audience just sort of went this is a film franchise and we accept that each movie is its own unique thing we are aware that there is a character of Bond but it doesn't really matter who's playing Bond it doesn't really matter if yeah. the villain's still there we're not really going to reference uh, things that happened in previous films and then the, the Daniel Craig franchise comes along and there's continuity between, you know, uh, Judy Dench's death and taking over by Ray Fiennes. There's continuity of um, love interests and villains being imprisoned in one film and showing up in the next film. Um, and I, I like it. I do not, not complaining about it at all. It's a different style of setup, but it actually has like a five film arc where you're like, oh, this is a, a self-contained thing. If I was actually going to go back and watch the Bond films, I might pick out the ones that I like with, you know, Roger Moore and um, Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery. But if you sit yeah. down with the Craig ones, you kind of almost feel now that because there is a, a beginning and a progression, have, yeah. you would actually want to watch all five of those films yeah. in order. I don't Which necessarily means, think yeah. it's it's good for the franchise in, in like, you know, as a whole, because it yeah. makes rebooting it kind of more significant than it was before. Whereas like now it's like, oh, who's going to take over from this arc? Who's going to be the next Bond? Whereas before, I think it wasn't as important who actually took over as Bond because they might be Bond for three films, they might be Bond for one film. It didn't really matter. It's an interesting discussion as well because the Bond series has been woefully inconsistent in this regard in that sometimes it establishes that the universes are shared, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does a reboot without saying it's a reboot, and other times it doesn't. So, for instance, the character of M, who was played by Bernard Lee in the original films, he carried through across three different Bonds, I believe. He was Connery's, Lazenby's, and Llewellyn. Roger Moore. What was the, who was Q's name? Llewellyn? Des- Llewellyn? Desmond Llewellyn played Q in every Bond film up until The World Has Done Enough with Pierce Brosnan. So he was like, you know, five, he had five different Bonds under him. Um, the Lewis Maxwell, I believe her name was, who played Moneypenny, she was across um, three different Bonds. She was Connery, Judy Dench did Lazenby, and Brosnan uh, and Craig as well. Yeah. In one of the Pierce Brosnan films, Died of the Day, the scene with R, so John Cleese's character who took over Q after Desmond Llewellyn passed away, there's a scene where they do the traditional, like, here's your gadgets, Bond, don't destroy them. And they're in a room, a secret archive, because MI6 had been blown up or something. Something happened anyway. He was in an underground subterranean Sorry, uh, base. Inter- interrupting ever so slightly to say that we're in a quicksand scene. Um, is this where he tries to throw a snake to him to pull him out of the yeah. quicksand? Yeah. Oh, dear. And uh, then keep Indy talking says, about your Q&R thing. I'd much rather hear about that than this in- Indy rubbish. says, I like, they say to Indy, pretend it's a rope. Or Indy says, just say it's a rope. Say it's a rope and I'll be fine. 
Anyway, um, they're in an underground thing and John Cleese is telling Bond not to play around with all the toys and the stuff that's in the scene with him are all gadgets from the older Bond films. Die Another Day was meant to be this like, it's the 20th Bond film, we're going to reference every single Bond film that's ever happened that was part of the like creative intent. So like the 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 poison knife shoes from Goldfinger or from uh, from Russia with Love are in that scene. The jetpack from Goldfinger is in that scene that Bond plays around with. So again, it's establishing that there is some kind of continuity there, I guess, or there's meant to be some kind Sorry, of. Sorry, I really can't get over how bad this scene is. Not only like not only is the scene <laughs> bad where he's trying to get, pull him out for, with a snake. But it's also the scene where Marion reveals that Mutt is his son. Yeah. Like six six minutes after she's reintroduced into the film, that they're having that awkward conversation and he's immediately going from, I don't care about this kid, to why didn't you make him finish school? And then yeah. I just like, you couldn't pull someone out with a snake either. That would just be... Anyway, sorry. I'm so sorry. I really... I promised we, I wasn't going to complain about the film, we, but it is we could just fix, so bad. We could look at fixing this film in the same way that we fixed... Um, Temple of Doom. Um, surely, if you'd had Marion there at the start and they were partners immediately, oh god, wouldn't that make more sense straight away? And it also, if you take away the actual aliens at the end of this film, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, and just made it that it was a religious cult who, back in the Mayan days, um, like revered this sort of sacred stone that they then carved into the shape of a alien yeah. skull based on something. It doesn't need to... You don't need to actually have the explanation. It, like, it, it would be the equivalent of, like, in... Um, oh, God. In Raiders, when they open up the Ark of the Covenant, then suddenly, like, Moses steps out and, like, <sighs> starts talking to everyone. They've got a giant tank which is just plowing through the jungle with its razor blade uh, saws, yeah. cutting things down. Because, you know, that's a thing that could happen and does exist. And uh-huh. Oh, I, yeah, and now, now yeah. the trucks are driving on a perfectly paved road behind the yeah, saw yeah. tree as it goes past. Uh, this is this is where it really falls because I like I know the worst scenes, so the, the flight, like going through the jungle with the monkeys on uh. vines is is coming up. The <laughs> sword fight on the back of a jeep is coming up. So yeah. that, oh, look, I don't know if the because this is two thousand and eight, right? When was World's End? That's the sword fight on the moving water wheel, right? The um, uh, Pirates a, of the Caribbean. Yeah, so that Which was I from. Think, um, that was not in World's End. That was in uh, the second Dead one. Men's, no, not Dead Men's Chess. What's the one before that? Black. Uh, that is Dead Men's. No. Uh, I'll just let me consult the Academy. Curse of the Black Pearl on Stranger Tides. Dead Men's Chest at World's End. Secret the other of one. the Unicorn. No, that's the Tintin one. So it was ah. okay. So we got it wrong. It's Curse of the Black Pearl was first, then yep. Dead Men's Chest. Dead Men's Chest is two, is it? Yeah, then and at then, World's End, and, and then, then on Stranger, on Stranger Tides. Tides. And what's yeah. the Javier Bardem one that we covered Dead on this Men, podcast? Dead Men Tell No Tales. Oh, right, okay. And then I believe they're actually trying to do... Yeah, there's a sixth film on the way, and a spin-off. And Johnny Depp is in them, is he, or...? I, I believe that they are going to try to get Johnny Depp back in for it. Who is now 60 as well, which is just... It's yeah. just crazy how old some of these people are. I was watching um, James Marsden, who's uh, uh, Cyclops from X-Men, just did a series called Jury Duty, where um, yep. the, the, the basic premise is that uh, 
they've advertised for people to uh, come onto a jury panel to film a documentary series about the the life of jurors in a criminal trial. The twist is that only one person uh, is just a regular person from the public and everyone else is an actor and they're scripting these absurd things to happen and it's filming this one person react to it. Part of the premise is that James Marsden uh, is playing James Marsden who's trying to get out of being part of the jury by being yep. a bit of a, a celebrity Hollywood um, self-centered jerk. Yeah. Uh, but he's 50. <laughs> Just I like, looked at, I think actually, I think he might be 49 at the moment, but I'm like, Oh man, I like, I, I suppose so. I suppose you were in um, X-Men as Cyclops in what, 2001. So that's a good 22 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it makes sense that you were 50, but where are like the, I think there's a massive gap in that sort of like maybe 30 to 45 year age yeah. bracket where I don't know. It's, I don't know who's playing. Like how, how old's Paul Rudd? Paul Rudd's got to be in his mid 50s or something. He's in his 50s, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, and these are the guys it, that, that are getting the roles of 35 year olds, but yeah. for some reason, yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's the, other, the other argument there is um, Marissa Torme has been playing uh, Aunt May in okay. the Tom Holland Spider Man films, and everyone's like, you can't have a, a young, hot Aunt May. And you're like, she is the same age as the women who have been playing Aunt May before. It's just that Hollywood has this system where um, there's such an emphasis on looks that you kind of have to put in the time and energy and effort of maintaining this youthful appearance. And so even though she's yeah. probably mid 50s as well, um, just looks significantly better than the the people who've played Aunt May in the past. The only actor for me that I don't that doesn't have that kind of phenomena is Maggie Smith. The reason being is that she plays Granny Wendy in Hook, the um, nineteen ninety three, I think, or ninety one Steven Spielberg kind of family adventure about a grown up Peter Pan. A film I love, by the way. I really way. like I, I refuse I, I've, to... I've heard people say bad things about it recently. I'm like, what do you mean bad things? This film's Mate, awesome. Spielberg it has himself Rufio, sells... And it has a, a yeah, Lost Boys hideout where it's... they have skateboards. I don't know what you're talking about. It's a fantastic film. And honestly, it gets even better the older I get. Because you just feel more of like Robin Williams's Peter Pan and... Penny. How he grows up and becomes an adult and kind of just forgets what it's like to be a child. Um and also, you know, the traditional Spielberg the uh, father abandonment kind of uh, issues that he tends to bring up in all his films. But um, Maggie Smith in that film is wearing some insanely good aged makeup. Like, even going back to it now and looking at it, the makeup that she's wearing is phenomenally good. She looks like an 80-year-old woman in that film. And there is a scene in that film where it's a flashback sequence and we're going to a younger version of Maggie Smith where they've basically just taken off the makeup so it's her just looking normal. But the thing is, like, Maggie Smith nowadays still doesn't look like the old version of her yet. And it's just, like, weeding me out. This person that looks like, legitimately looks like an old person in Hook still doesn't look like that now, even though 30 years have passed. It's just, uh, yeah, it weirds me out. It's so bizarre. I, when a moment there when you were saying she took off the old age makeup to look like a young uh, Maggie Smith, I thought you were talking about the bit that Gwyneth Paltrow plays. No, 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 no. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, that what? <laughs> she didn't take off the 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 makeup and then suddenly look like Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 weird because again, I've never seen aged makeup look that good. 
uh, just as an interruption, they they hit a speed bump and the jeep bounced up in the air. And when it came back down, the the crystal skull had had flown up in the air, and John Hurt just happened to catch it out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and now, yeah. uh, Kate Blanchett has drawn her sword. And I believe she's about to have a uh, sword fight with Shia LaBeouf on the back of some oh, cars. Yeah, of course, because there was wasn't there some kind of like there was a story thing in there, a bit of um, uh, like. There was a story moment in there where they reveal that he is a sword fencing student or something. Or I look, maybe I wasn't paying enough attention. There's definitely a chest with three sabers in the back of it for some reason. Uh, yeah, maybe she's a world class fencing person. Maybe in Russia, they just they do fencing on the back of jeeps just for fun. Um, yeah, who knows? Mm-hmm. Hey, well, I mean, Madonna did fencing and die another day as well, so I guess anyone can do it. Uh, I, I like, yeah. I, I'm going to be a little bit silent during the bad bits because I do feel as though as part of my punishment, I really should be watching uh, watching this happen. The other thing is, like, one of the boats is quite clearly one of those boat cars. Oh, sorry, one of the cars That's is right, quite clearly yeah. a boat car, um, which, like, is just completely foreshadowing the fact that it's going to go into water because mm-hmm. it's, it's only the one that they're in as well. It's only the one that the heroes have managed to take control of that yep. has the uh, the front of it, which is, like, the prow of a boat. Um, yeah, but as, that it, means, as like, if the, they're trying the to Rush- pretend it's not going to happen. But the yeah. Russians, at some point, must have real like must have thought we're going to need a boat car for Possibly, some reason. But, but only one? also, not all of the cars that we're going to take are boat cars. Yeah, so we're only so going to need to take a couple of them across the river. Oh, he's straddling the two cars, and as they're driving along, plants are hitting him in the nuts. Of course, Hilarious. they are. Because it's a Mar- it's a, oh, it's it's, a that's the Three fifth, Stooges six. film. Yeah. Have you? I mean, I, I never really got into um, the silent era slapstick comedy stuff. Um, yeah. Obviously, with uh, with these films, Lucas and and Spielberg are drawing on um, a different era of films, right? So I think they've quoted yeah. as the the treasure of the Sierra Madre as being one of the the films that influenced them. Also, Ducktales quite a lot, um, and I only realised quite recently that. The well, DuckTales logo is the same as Indiana Jones. But you're saying, hang on, what? I thought you were saying that like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were inspired by DuckTales to make Indiana Jones, but you're saying that oh, yeah. DuckTales no, 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 is no, inspired. No, that is what I said. 100% what I said is George Lucas and Indiana Jones, uh, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were inspired by DuckTales to make Indiana Jones. No, they weren't. I'm, I'm, again, look, I probably should do research and be drawing upon that- information. I'm certain that is the case. No, you that is a hundred percent wrong. Like, the it, the, it can't the, the right. DuckTales comics from the fifties and sixties. DuckTales is not that old. I look it up. I'm pretty sure DuckTales was a comic strip um from the like the early fifties and sixties, no? No. DuckTales is literally just the animated T V series. That's what it's called. That has been inspired by Indiana Jones for sure. What's that the um out- the precursor to DuckTales was like What's Scrooge the, McDuck. Yeah, and the, the Uncle Beagle Scrooge Boys. And, so it the the um the comic that DuckTales was kind of based on is one called Uncle Scrooge, um, which started in nineteen fifty two and but had nothing to do with DuckTales. Yeah. Have have you seen the um the how Inception was inspired by DuckTales? There's a, a there's a fantastic series where they've pulled um and again I'm probably saying Ducktales when I made the the Scrooge um, Scrooge McDuck 
yeah. uh, a comic strip. But there's a thing where there's literally a, a device which you can use to go inside people's minds, and the Beagle Boys are using that to get inside Scrooge McDuck's mind to find wow. like the codes to his. And then they've like they've cut together. Someone's cut together. I think three different storylines from that um, Scrooge McDuck comic, and those that is pretty much the plot of Inception, which is <laughs> incredibly weird. But I. <laughs> I could have sworn that there was a, a serialized adventure comic strip that had the Scrooge McDuck as a character in it, which has been cited as inspiration for Indiana Jones. Maybe I'm uh, completely wrong about that. I think you might be. Because, yeah, so the Beagle Boys was a comic as well. And that was kind of, they crossed over with Uncle Scrooge. Uh, but I, no, I don't, I've never heard. I've never read, never seen any anything that like said suggested that they were influenced or inspired by. Definitely not by Ducktales. Ducktales was done in the nineties. Like, looks just some like impossibility there. Um, I, I literally have typed it in, and the first article that's come up is how Indiana Jones was inspired by a duck. A um, duck. That's Which right. One, Indiana though? Jones is in part inspired by Scrooge McDuck, the Scottish-American uh, miserly uncle of Donald Duck. To be fair, there were a lot of things that inspired George Lucas to create his famed adventurer, which we'll get into in a minute. But according to George Lucas himself, a large part of the eventual creation of Indiana Jones was the Karl Barks adventure comics that starred Scrooge McDuck. Really? I feel significantly less like an idiot right now. Vindicated. Well, I mean, it wasn't DuckTales, so... No, I mean, like... but that's, again, I, I've probably conflated the fact that the Scrooge McDuck comic... I just assumed that the Scrooge McDuck com- uh, uh, comic was called DuckTales, but uh, if it predates it, then obviously it's a, a bit of a, a rawboros, the snake eating its own tail, where the Scrooge McDuck expires Indiana Jones, and then when they do the logo for DuckTales, it is the same sort of like graphic format of that Indiana Jones... Um, disappearing into the perspective distance with the the colouring on it, but yeah. I do want to talk about George Lucas, uh, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, because his name is starting to pop back up again with regards to how poorly Disney has handled the Star Wars franchise, particularly the films. Um, And there are a somewhat vocal amount of people, or at least in the meme world, suggesting or asking Disney to relinquish the reins back to George Lucas and I don't know if it's, there's a direct quote or anything like that my guess is probably not but there's talk that like Lucas has said he'd return to it if Disney gave him complete creative control over <laughs> over it and I think it's just such a bizarre timeline that we're in right now because I, you know, I look I don't necessarily want Lucas to come back to it I don't agree with uh, I don't find a lot of the stuff that Disney's doing with it particularly entertaining. There's some really great stuff. I'm I'm one episode away from finishing off Andor, and mm-hmm. Andor is this kind of um, it's told in the Star Wars universe, but kind of doesn't really fundamentally have anything to do with any of the Skywalker stories or plots. Um, yep. The Mandalorian, I haven't watched the most recent seasons but i found that kind of enjoyable where they're sort of just taking the the general idea and premise without necessarily feeling like it has to all be tied to that one storyline um but realistically disney's just producing so much content so much star wars stuff that some of it's going to be bad some of it's going to be good uh and you can watch you know pick and choose whatever you want from it it's just incredibly plentiful i suppose really is the only thing you can really say about what disney's doing with it i suppose so but i think what it 
it kind of lacks right now is just that sense that someone is in charge of like the canon and I think that's probably yeah. what people are saying and why people think that like having George Lucas back at the hell makes sense it's the, while- it's the Kevin Feige thing with Marvel right you actually have yeah. one person in charge who's saying here's the direction that it's going we can have multiple people writing and directing the films but yeah. fundamentally there is one person who is Oh dear goodness! Sorry, the the ants the ants have just created a like a bridge to get up to Kate Blanchett to try and eat her, and she's squashed the ant between her knees. Um, oh, oh, sorry, I'm gonna try and ignore this ant fight sequence because it's horrendous. But yeah, it's when so you have bad. one person controlling the fate of the story, then yeah. you kind of ha- it's, it's a bit more coherent and consistent overall the worst things about the um uh episodes seven eight nine was that there were, it, it felt like there was a tug of war between you know jj abrams and um uh uh guy who's ryan, name, yeah, ryan johnson ryan johnson where um they were just undoing each other's work because there wasn't a consistent direction that the story was heading yeah but and I think they've they've only made the mistake in that film. I don't really necessarily think that there's that mistake elsewhere within the the franchise. Well, yeah, I mean it's unclear. I don't I don't think like everyone again, if you delve into like the, the real hardcore Star Wars people, they have problems with aspects of the Mandalorian, they have problems with the aspects of the Boba Fett spin-off. I'm sure that the Ashoka one will have its own problems. Obi Wan, the miniseries, was terrible. Yeah, I didn't um, like that. um but they're, they're apparently trying to tie uh, all of those um, Book of Boba Fett, Mandalorian, Ashoka. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing a, like, once all of those series have, have finished up, they're going to do a series of, I think, a trilogy of films that ties it all together. Yeah. I'm a bit disappointed. I grew up, uh, I'll say reading. I definitely bought the books. I'm not sure I ever actually read them. The the Rogue One, uh, the Rogue, uh, Rogue Squadron. Rogue yep. Squadron was a, a you know elite series of X-wing fighters uh, trying to uh, navigate the universe after Return of the Jedi. You know, uh, ferreting out um, the last vestiges of the Empire and all this sort of fun stuff. Good series of books, lots of good characters to draw upon. Uh, and then they announced that they were doing a Rogue Squadron uh, film series. Hey. I don't know if it was a film or a series. They know they announced the project. A, they it was announced a film. Patty and, Jenkins um, was directing it. Yeah. And then it got sort of quietly removed from the uh, from the schedule, and they're not doing that anymore. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that was the one project I was excited about, and that's gone now. Yeah. And now you're yep. doing series from auxiliary characters from an animated Clone Wars TV show that I really don't <laughs> care about. Um, so, yeah, but the thing is, like, a lot of people care about a show. That's true. She's I, very I'm sure much a fan favorite. Significantly more people care about her than a series of uh, extended universe books that were written yeah. in the late '90s. So, I think yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, um, I think that the, the the thing with Star Wars, in particular, with George Lucas as well. So, I've been reading a book, and now they're going off um, a waterfall. I've been reading a book recently about like just it's just a collection of making of kind of interviews and photos and stuff about the prequels, and we all know that the prequels are not good films, right? But the amount of artistry and the ideas that Lucas had in the decades since he made the original films, there's good stuff in there. There's good ideas. He had a clear idea of what he was trying to do. And the artists going off as well. Second waterfall. <laughs> 
Oh, I forgot it was two. It is a Looney Tunes cartoon. They've just it made Warn Brothers. It is yeah. just like a really bad coyote uh, cartoon. Um, but yeah, there's there's some interesting thoughts. Like when the the artist that came up with the idea for the you know the battle droids, the Roger Roger battle droids, yeah. and the prequel episodes, when they were coming up with the aliens that were um, having in a charge about to happen, of those, AJ? a third waterfall, a third waterfall. And then the giant boulder falls from the ground, from the sky and, and crushes them all. That's right. They, they all fell out of the, the Jeep with this this uh, this waterfall. So I'm sure yeah. they'll all just wash up on shore and be completely yeah, fine. because they landed in that really soft, calm, tranquil water. So yeah. everything's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was, like, ideas in that, in the film, in the artistry. So, the you know, the Roger Roger Badgeros have that really long, elongated kind of head, um, almost cylindrical, very stretched out. Yeah, and the idea that they had when they were making the aliens, the um, who ended up being bizarrely slightly racist in the final film, um, the the Nemoidians, was that the artist was thinking that they had created these battle droids kind of in their own image. So the original look of those aliens had a similar kind of elongated that's very cool. facial structure. What eventually ended up happening was that Lucas said we need to change it because like practically this is going to be impossible to make uh, for, as a mask, as someone who could wear it on, on set. So they ended up having to change the design for it. But it's just sort of like ideas like that that just suggest to me that someone was having a lot deeper thoughts about design and story and yeah, so on and so that, forth. Yeah, but that was and, never the issue with the prequel films, especially Phantom Menace, right? Which still, for the most part, uses practical sets, practical effects. Uh, the, like... Naboo looks great. The Naboo fighters look great. The pod races look great. Um, the alien and the characters' designs look great. The the, the artistry and um, craftsmanship in building those things holds up. It's just the story that doesn't really work. But in even fact, on the I mean, points, on the points I, of the story, like the original ideas that Lucas had, which are kind of loosely in the prequels as well, they were just a lot stronger than what we actually got in the film. It's such a bizarre, like you can kind of feel reading this book and looking at the artistry that there is a alternate version of the prequels that are much better than what we actually got. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that people have taken that film and tried to re-edit it is that I think people are aware there is something great in there. And and for the most part, I think it just involves taking out a little bit of Jar Jar um, and... There's also probably missing a fair amount I think of dramatic tension. I think there's a lot more that would need to be done there from a script perspective and just like an allegory perspective as well. And, and, and also just like trying to figure out what the intent of those films is because yeah. you've got the original films, they tell a story that's contained, well, but then you've got these prequel films that kind of spoil elements of the original the, the, films. The intent of the film is to end up where... A New Hope begins. That's that's probably its its biggest flaw is that it is really just pointing in one direction. It's pointing in the direction that everyone knows that it's going to eventually arrive at, and that the, yeah. the films are just trying so hard to get to that point. Um, whereas, you know, it's not as though they've gone, okay, well, a whole universe existed before A New Hope. What is an interesting story we can tell in that universe? It is like, no, yeah. let's, you know, try and draw, you know, reverse connect the dot ba- dots backwards to find what what led to the, the road markers that we already know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I still think there's, you can probably pull out um, that fight with Darth Maul uh, in, at the end as probably being the best lightsaber fight of 
uh, all nine films. I still think, for me, and, and look, it might be it might be the fact that it is just the banging soundtrack, the Jewel of the Fates, um, that's <laughs> underscoring it. It might be because yeah. it's you know the first time you see that sort of double sided lightsaber and you kind of have that old oh shit sort of moment. But I think like as a as a lightsaber jewel, it is just a massive ramp up from that sort of you know very simple kendo style um sequences that we'd seen in the original films yeah and i think that they like really what the hell (laughs) what the actual hell there's tribesmen who were like baked into the walls and they punch their way out through the what i do not remember this this they were in the walls (laughs) 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 hundreds of them yeah it's the classic Doom monster closet design. You know, in oh. Doom, when you walk into a room at some point and sometimes like the lights go off and a bunch of hidden walls open up and all these monsters come out. And when you defeat them but, all... But the walls didn't open up, were, AJ. They I had know, to they, break their way through yeah. the walls. Yeah, yeah. Hundreds and hundreds of native tribesmen had just... <laughs> I, I don't, I'm, I'm speechless. But Absolutely maybe they speechless. were loaded in from the rear... Like yeah. maybe it's like the maybe it's like a gun cartridge. Right? I've o- can- often thought in um, in Raiders of the Lost Ark that the you know the the bit before they get to the idol where there's the pressure pl- plates yeah um, that fire the darts. I've always imagined that there were actual tribesmen behind there with blow darts because they didn't actually figure out how to, how um, to actually do th- the it, pressure yeah. plates the to work. But it's yeah. just like they're watching each one of them has one of the pressure plates, and if they see it go down, then they fire yeah. off their yeah. their blow dart uh, because yeah. you know that's that's the only way they could get the <laughs> mechanism to work. Yeah, exactly. Um, where was I? Uh, we were Lucas. talking about George Lucas. We're talking about uh, old Georgie boy. I was talking about so how the, the, the lightsaber yeah, fight I mean, was the best that, fight. That particular fight is almost comically operatic. Like the music is very operatic. The choreography is a dance. Effectively, they're not actually fighting. If you actually trace the arcs of the lightsabers to where they I, I think they're that's swinging. unfair. If if you're saying that, you I've, I watched some um one of those stuntmen react videos talking about the fight at the end of um the last Jedi and uh. you you literally see one guy come in and realize that the timing is off and instead of swinging the sword just does a spin and pulls himself away from the fight because like they were a couple of beats behind. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, none of none of the choreography of any fight sequence ever is ever such that the arc of each punch is supposed to land, the arc of each sword no, blow is supposed know, to be taking off limbs. But it's very obvious in Phantom Menace in that particular fight scene that they are just like not really attacking each other. But that's kind of one of the things that I liked about uh, The Force Awakens, the fight between Rey and um, what's his face? Kylo? Kylo at the end where they had designed the choreography to be a blend of the kind of high-intensity prequel lightsaber action, but then also some of the clunkiness of the original trilogy lightsaber fights as well. And their fight is a little bit more realistic in the sense that it does actually feel like they're going for each other and that they're getting... There's, you know, it's a workout to swing that thing around and, and so on. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, you know, even going back to that fight in Phantom Menace, it is like, it's an opera. And like a lot of Lucas's inspirations were like classic operas, just in the way that the music works and, and so on. You can see that his love of like cars and 
street racing from the 50s a 50s americana is in there in the pod racing sequence um <laughs> and also the the diner owner who's the yeah in episode um, two the, the, the weird inexplicably diner 1950s diner yeah um, it's he wears his inspirations on his sleeve i think that's right. um but yeah it's definitely what star wars is missing but i think also like the problem with star wars is that tonally it's just all over the place now there is no consistency anymore no. even the films that take place in the same time frame as the original trilogy it's just like well this just doesn't look the same it doesn't feel the same but that's uh, the, the same as um each sort of different generation cries out for a different style of storytelling you can look at the look at the batman series for example where um the nolan films work really well as a grim dark reboot of the series like grounded in realism as a contrast to the joel schumacher films that have come before it um and yeah. so, but but now i think everyone's a bit tired of the grim dark story and kind of possibly wouldn't mind something that's a bit sort of more light-hearted um and doesn't take itself so seriously it's it's difficult to to look at any piece of um media outside of the context of when it was released and all of the other things that came before it so i think some of the star wars stuff while you know might not work particularly well as pieces within the current context might you know might work in different er eras where people are searching for something that's a bit more comical a bit more light-hearted or if you're looking for something that's a bit more serious um it's it's different it's difficult to judge because you know my my tastes were for a very long time that i wanted films to take themselves a little bit more seriously and a bit be a bit less jokey and now that everything's taking itself so very very seriously i'm like oh maybe we should go back to it being a little (laughs) bit more light-hearted maybe possibly it doesn't have to be so serious and grim and uh, but see my only my only issue with that is that you know i understand making new films or making a new series or rebooting it and it changes tone that's totally fine but the thing is like Star Wars bashes you over the head constantly about how everything is related to everything that's come before. And that's the problem I have. It's like, well, okay, you guys are are, are saying everything is related. Remember this bit from the original films? Well, we've just referenced it in this brand new piece of media. It's like, okay, you guys are going to do that. Then I'm also going to be uncomfortable with how inconsistent everything is and how, like, canonically, like, you've introduced a brand new spaceship, for instance, but it sits within the within the same time frame as the original trilogy, so why wasn't it there? Like it's that kind of like bizarre revisionist version of Star Wars, where like we're going to write films that sit within the same timeline, but we're going to do our own thing. It's just like, but you can't do your own thing. Like you need to keep it within here if you're saying that it is within this time frame, and that's it. Just annoys me in ways that like I can't really explain, like. Rogue One is a decent film, but I hated that there was new spaceships in it because yeah, they even never the, even appear the, ever again. The um the jungle stormtroopers, where it's just like yeah. really like in in um uh a new hope, the sand troopers were just regular stormtroopers with an orange shoulder pad. Like yeah, it wasn't it wasn't even a different piece of armor. It was literally just like a piece of fabric that sort of yeah. sat over their their shoulder for their um. Yeah. Yeah, they're longer range weapons. They were all Perfect. sort of wearing the same style yeah. of armor. Um, Ro- Rogue One has that levity droid as well, the K2SO played by, um, what's his Alan face? Tudyk? From, uh, Alan Tudyk, yeah. Who's possibly one of the most advanced droids I've ever seen in the universe until that point. And then you go into New Hope and it's just C3PO, R2D2, and those little like black 
trash droids on <laughs> the Death little Star. Little rat things that are running around so, the Death Star, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what happened to K2SO? You guys had a million of these things and they're like armoured and they can shoot and they're just never seen again. You had way fancier TIE fighters in the last bit of Rogue One. Where do they go? Yeah. Like, my well, One of my gripes is that... Um, there's obviously there's a, a number of different alien species and they're constantly sort of being introduced but i kind of if you, if you look at the first film if you look at just a new hope in isolation there's not a lot like the the galaxy is particularly sparsely inhabited there's yeah. you know you see a couple of locations you don't get a sense that every single planet in every single galaxy is just absolutely teeming with life and civilization it's kind of like you could almost imagine the galaxy being kind of empty and there's only maybe like six or seven different alien species that exist. And then every piece of media that comes out after that is just so keen to go, and now look at this weird alien, and now look at this weird alien. <laughs> and you, you go to get to the um, Obi-Wan and he runs through the street and there's like 30 different intelligent alien species that you've just never seen before. Like, oh, yeah. I kind of get it. I kind of get it. If you get hired on to be a, like a production designer or whatever for um, a Star Wars property, you want to stamp your own mark on it and create a new uh, alien species. But it kind of, to me, I preferred the universe that was like, you know, there's only there's only a couple of planets and there's only a couple of different species. And yeah. um, whilst, you know, the galaxy is kind of vast, we're kind of a bit empty and alone within that. And we're yeah. kind of isolated in that respect. And then suddenly yeah. just becomes this big teeming bustling you know universe that you can't you just can't get your head around all the different technologies and cultures and alien species and stuff like that that exist within this realm it's just it is too big and vast and broad it's yeah it it, i think star wars falls into that trap of being this kind of like open book now particularly with disney where like you can just put whatever you want in there and provided it has some kind of like tangential connection to the canon as they define it it's fine and it's again it's annoying because it, it, it contradicts other stuff so there's a new game coming out that ubisoft has just announced which is a big open world star wars game which is meant to be set between empire and return of the jedi completely original character new planet this original character also has like this pet kind of like animal sidekick as well who is an alien i've never seen before in any of the star wars things that i've consumed and it's just like but like Everyone is so keen to add new stuff to this franchise when there's plenty of stuff already in there that hasn't really been used. Yeah. Too many hands to, on the ball. To the extent of where it could be used. So it's like, well, I think, why is oh, everyone look, so keen I to think add I to it this? Before. At a certain point, Star Wars just means different things to different people. And yeah. you're forced as a consumer of media just to pick the things that you like and go, okay, well, I love the original three films. Um, and that, to me, is what Star Wars is. That's what it was all through my childhood. If I'm going to enjoy Star Wars, I might as well just turn on those three films and just enjoy them like I always have and not yep. necessarily be concerned that there's there's a lot of other stuff that's out there, which you know a lot of other people enjoy, but I can pick the things that I like. It's the same, again, talking about Indiana Jones. I can, after we get through the next... Um, uh, 17 minutes I can go back to ignoring that this film exists I can I can live yeah. my life quite comfortably um, yeah. saying I have seen this film three times I saw it once when it came out in 2008 mm-hmm. and then like yep. uh, 10 years later you and I watched it and then okay. five years after that I was forced unwillingly to watch it again <laughs> and I can go back after that to being hey for me Indiana Jones is 
the first three films. Maybe, possibly, it might also include a fifth film. We'll have to see how that goes when we go see it uh-huh. in a week. Um, but yep. but if I'm going to enjoy it, then I'm just going to focus on the bits that I like. And I know that's being kind of a little bit, um, kind of a little bit of the problem with society nowadays is that you can just you know stick your head in the sand and only really focus on the things that resonate with your worldview. But Fair. if it's going to make you upset because you know one particular animated series of Star Wars um, says that you know three uh, PO was actually invented by some sith lord before and then it's like no that's not what happened that's not how i think it should be someone's made a mistake here then just don't let it upset you just focus on the bits that you like and focus on the bits that make you happy i think you're 100 percent right and like contrary to everything i've just said it doesn't bother me that much because i think and this is going back to that conversation we had about like people saying that like this new version of something has ruined their childhood or it was like ruined the franchise or whatever it's like but those original films still exist it's not like they've yeah. been erased from history and it's not like you can't ask well, I mean Star Wars is a different story on that matter but it's not like <laughs> it's not like the version that you loved is now completely inaccessible yeah. and I mean, is never I, to be seen again last year I sat down with some friends and watched the first Matrix film I haven't mm-hmm. watched those films in quite a while because the second two films left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth that I never, mm-hmm. didn't really want to go back and revisit it and had the most pleasant movie-going experience I've had in a very long time watching just that first film. And I'm going, yeah. why, why has it been so long since I've re-watched it? Mainly because I feel like when I do watch the first one, I then it's a chore to sit down and watch the, the second and the third ones. I can just watch the first one. I can I can be yeah, happy with that. You're right. It hasn't changed anything. That, that The first film is still as good as the first time that I yeah. watched it. Um, and it's the way in which I choose to experience that film that yeah. dictates whether I'm I'm enjoying it or not. It doesn't anything yeah. that's come after that is uh, is completely you know auxiliary. No amount sorry. no amount of bad Matrix sequels are going to make the first film worse. It just it can't. It's not possible. Like I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it that's not necessarily I, true. Yeah. Uh, no, but no, well, no. It, it is it, true. You, you still have like, to. You still have to ignore the ones that come after it. Yeah, but like ignoring something that comes after it is a lot easier than like having it like actually metamorphosize into something else. If somehow a fifth Matrix film goes back and edits every single DVD, Blu-ray streaming <laughs> version of Matrix and changes the actual physical content of that film, yeah. There is no Digitally way replaces uh, Lawrence yeah, Fishburne it, it, with Hayden yeah. Christensen. Maybe, yeah. maybe then it's a little <laughs> bit worse. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's the only... And again, this is why I say Star Wars is a different story, because yeah, the original versions of the original films Just don't aren't exist. actually available. Yeah. They don't exist. Uh, and that's a crime of its in, on, in and of itself. But for the most part, for the majority of films, no matter how many bad sequels come out or how many things come out that you don't like, that original thing still exists, and you yep. can still enjoy it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, there's no need to be a completionist... You know, no. I, I just yeah, like I don't need to see the other three Matrix films because they're all. To be fair, like I enjoy the sequels in different ways for different reasons, but they're not good films. No, um, I, and, and I the, do feel as though the things that they introduce there uh, do contradict things that I love about the first films, or they they yeah. expand like the just even the concept of Zion, where I'm just like, oh, it's just you know, kind of thing that we never get to see but where where exists and then when it does sort of manifest itself as um a physical place you get to see it you're like oh it's a underground cave rave techno rave with sweaty naked people that's yeah 
much much less cool than i thought it was going to be um yeah okay sure yeah uh, yeah and the least said about the uh, most recent one the better i think but you yeah know, i d- didn't different. really enjoy that although having said that its portrayal of zion uh i think was significantly better um than, there are a lot of good ideas yeah. in that film i think and i and i will say this about all the matrix sequels in particular the vision of the directors is clear they had ideas that they wanted to express and they expressed them like in a way that i think a lot of studios wouldn't allow no because like there's just a lot of choices in there that just go against what would be a cookie cutter kind of experience from a generic studio i'm not saying that the ideas are good they're not a lot of them are quite bad but it is the film that they wanted to make and i kind of respect that in the same way that i respect lucas and the prequels he had a lot of great ideas and a lot of bad ones and the films that he made those prequels that he made are the films that he wanted to make and maybe he was technologically limited at various points which has always been his bugbear but he set out to make the prequels and he made them he made bad films but they're still his they're not like mandated by studio they're not generic in the same way that Disney makes films Disney makes films that are competently made cohesive story wise are fine but there's nothing to them no they're they're very empty that's that's my probably biggest gripe with uh, the marvel film series is that they're all well made but Mm. there has not been a film that's come out recently that isn't almost exactly the same structure and story that they've done a dozen times before and they know they've got a formula they know the formula works they can you know spend i don't know how much they're spending about 100 million dollars on the film and it's going to gross them uh half a billion dollars each time it's it's a guaranteed profit money maker they're not going to do anything too controversial they're never going to kill off characters that they can't then sort of bring back uh it is a money-making exercise and yeah you don't take risks if you if you want a guaranteed return a guaranteed profit you just don't take risks and you end up with all these films that are just yeah they 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 reek of uh safety but I, and I mean, I don't know where DC is going as well. So, you know, they've got, um, uh, what's his name? James Gunn now in control of the DC film output from a creative standpoint. He's going to be like the, basically the Kevin Feige uh, of Warner Brothers and DC. So to, to um, place this recording in, uh, in chronology of time, the flash came out this weekend did it or like this this week i think yeah. yeah so where the i haven't heard anything about it it is i'm surprised that the dc extended universe is continuing in the way that it has like you said they've they're actually sort of pushing for it but that's in terms of what's out at the box office right now uh the second spider-verse film came out about two weeks ago which i saw um, yep. which is sort of sony's obviously it's not strictly speaking part of the um uh marvel studios stuff even though they have a, a fairly significant it could be. and then yeah the flashes so in terms of like you know if we're in marvel phase four part three revision two yeah. and dc yeah. uh, like you know that's 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 where we are chronologically yep um but yeah i don't know if dc is going to continue going down that route or whether or not they're going to just sort of be more experimental because the batman film the film called the batman starring um Pattinson, Robert Pattinson, pretty decent for the most part. Felt like completely falls over in the third act, but I've heard it's interesting. Forty minutes too long. It's like a three-hour film, right? It is quite a long film, but just like the third act is 
beyond silly, I think, just in the context of the film that came before it. But it is an artist who is not shackled by being inside a universe that has to relate with all these other films and all these other stories. It is just a standalone film. It has nothing to do with any of the other DC extended universe stuff. And so it could do different things. It could be a little bit different in how it wanted to portray Batman. Um, and I kind of miss that in those big tentpole films. I'm sort of... You're kind of what, seeing what's like... What's that I'm hearing, AJ? Is that is that the sound of wedding bells? <laughs> Oh, you're really there. How delightful. So you missed the, uh, we we missed the brain melting scene. Oh, I, you missed it. I, I had to suffer <laughs> through it. And then their escape from the, uh, from the, um, the underground oh, the, the, the water, temple or the whatever water it was. The slide of doom or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I'm quite excited that this is almost done. Yeah. So yeah, going back to my original thing about people wanting George Lucas to come back, I, I'm almost on that side because like I would kind of rather see films that are not great but still represent the like direct ideas of a creative individual. In the same way that like The Matrix Four was really bad, but like those were your ideas. That was those were all like Lana Wachowski's ideas. She wanted to like have these story points and make these decisions and that's what the film we got and it wasn't like taken over by a studio to like smooth out all the edges and make it like painfully generic like I'd rather kind of see bad films that are indicative of what a director mm. wanted to I, do I think one of the bigger issues that we're seeing now as well is that directors who show like a lot of talent and do something original and creative and have this low budget indie film don't yeah. then get to do a second slightly bigger budget indie film and tell a slightly more complicated story and they don't get to you know build their career they're almost instantly gobbled up by yeah. the marvel studios and given reins of these 100 million dollar films you're like oh, i actually kind of really wanted to see what your career was outside of this yeah um interestingly like the ryan johnson thing is a a, a weird yeah. one where he did start out doing those indie films like sort of brick and um, yep. the Brothers Looper. Bloom was it? I think it was his, his other one. Which I um, don't mind those films. I really actively hate his entry into the Star Wars universe. But he's gone out now and done Knives Out and Glass Onion, which I think are really good expressions of what he wants to do as a creative storyteller. Um, yeah. His series uh, uh, Poker Face on one of the streaming services was quite good, quite a, an interesting original take. So he's sort of been spat out the other side of this big sort of like big budget film industry and has gone back to creating his own original ideas and telling much more compelling stories, I feel, than than you would have when you're constrained by that sort of um, big studio existing IP franchise system. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's an, I, uh, The Last Jedi is a really interesting one too. I just, I... I don't know how that film came to be. That's there's a big question mark over like how how that film even happened in the first place. It's look, I think it's a indication of Disney not actually really caring about the direction yeah, of that. Which, it's, it's like we've hired you; you go out and do it. It's like, but what do you? What story are you telling? How does it fit into the the narrative? What are these characters doing? What are their eventual relationships? It's like, we we don't care. We we set up something in the first film. You can use it if you want. You cannot use it if you don't want. We we do not care what you do. But it's interesting because like Ryan Johnson wrote that film as well, and he directed it. 
so it suggests to me that the studio gave him free reign but yeah. like yeah it's bizarre it's and so that, weird well, it was colin trevorrow was supposed to be on for the third film is that yeah and then colin trevorrow was he, writing he directing write, writing and directing that as well and then yeah abraham got bumped yeah. To be fair, he got probably got bumped for the right reasons. But his his actual plot summary of what the third pre the third sequel is meant to be, there is a summary of it on Wikipedia, and it's actually pretty good. I have no confidence that he could have delivered on that based on <laughs> like his track record. Yeah. Uh, but as a plot outline, it's like oh, this is actually a more interesting film than what we ended up getting. So it's yeah, it's a mess. But look, I don't want to leave. I don't want to end this uh, this nope, recording. That's right. On, I'm, on I'm that actually point. watching white title scroll up a, a black screen, so um, I do not. Are have you going to sit through the entire credits? I mean, it's it's part of watching the film is part of the bet. There's a, only probably about three minutes of it um, to go. Fair and enough. It's under, underscored sequence? by I assume John Williams, um, and it so is, yeah. He's um, the, the entire suite. There is some good music from John Williams in that film uh, as well. It's, really good themes. It, look, it's it's all right. Uh, he doesn't use previous scores as a crutch which i kind of appreciate he uses little motifs throughout there but it's not like he's just using entire tracks from um last crusade or raiders or anything like that which you often sort of see with these sequel follow-ups where you go we want you to remember how good our previous films were so we're going to quite heavily draw upon those um musical uh, motifs that we've introduced before just to try like elicit those same sort of senses of yeah. how you enjoyed the previous films yeah um, I think like to end this like you and I always come at this from the point of just being lovers of film and story um, and to, to be kind of transported away and it, it, these are all like meaningless platitudes that any person would throw at Anyone that's interested in film would throw that at the movie industry as well, that you want to be transported away and, and be lost in another world. But uh, I think you and I, and particularly for Indiana Jones as well, which is just, at least for me, represents one of my all-time favorite characters and, and certainly some of my all-time favorite films. And some of my earliest memories of watching films are Indiana Jones. Um, the fact that even if we're not, haven't enjoyed what's come out recently or we haven't enjoyed every bit of creative output of this character the fact that we're both still very excited for yeah a fifth film and on paper you're just like well hang on you've got an 80 year old man playing an action adventure star that he used to play when he was in his 30s uh, on paper that 30? sounds like a bad idea 30 or 40 is whenever um, he, however old if he's he was. 80 now so he played the first one in 1980 i want to say which is no earlier than that. It was seventy four, I think. No, no, no. Uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah. No, no. Uh, Raiders was between um, uh, Empire Strikes Back and A New Hope, so it was. Uh, I'm going to say eighty one. Yeah, you're right. Eighty one, eighty two. Yeah, eighty one. And then eighty four, and then eighty nine. So if he's okay. eighty now, and he played Indiana Jones, uh, what's that? Forty three years ago. <laughs> Yeah, he, he would have been thirty-seven when he was playing yeah. Indiana Jones for the first time. Yeah, yeah. in his late thirties, basically. Yeah, and again, so as I was saying, on paper, right? if you Maybe. said, "Yeah, oh, this film's coming out. It stars an eighty-year-old man who is playing a character he used to play in his late thirties," you'd just be like, "Well, what? Who would see this?" 
It's in the same way that people joke about the Rolling Stones being like still touring despite the fact that they're all 120 years old or something. Yeah. But the fact is it still elicits that sense of like excitement and with Harrison Ford being the person that he is, the the iconic kind of actor that he is, you just want to see it. You want to see him in that role and play that I'm character. I'm a little bit disappointed that they've done the de-aging thing for him. Um, yeah. I didn't look. I didn't watch that. Um, what was the Scorsese one about the the mobs? The Irishman. The Irishman, where mm. the criticism was that you can de-age the faces, but you can't de-age the movement. They still move <laughs> like they're eighty year old. Like they're trying to kick someone, like they're mobsters, and it looks like there's you know eighty year old guys trying to like act <laughs> like they're twenty and kicking a guy. So like it's. Yeah. Um, uh, I oh, we'll see we'll see if it actually works with them de-aging Harrison Ford or how much of it they they rely on that in terms of the narrative. But my um, understanding it's uh, it's just the intro sequence. It's like the uh, cold open, okay. which, which relates to the story later on in the film. Right. But it is kind of like a we'll, standalone sequence. We'll see how it goes. But regardless of like whatever the technical aspect of it is and whatever we like or end up not liking about it, I think just from a purity sense, the fact that we can still be so excited that this is happening yeah like there is you can be as cynical as you want i think disney owns the franchise now and like disney is disney harris afford is like 80 he shouldn't be playing a character like this steven spielberg is not involved except for being an ep and we all know that being an ep means nothing because he's also the ep of many many terrible films <laughs> the one that springs to mind is eagle eye which is a shia labeouf yeah, film which the other do- one that springs to mind exist. is all the transformers films yeah. as well at least the transformers so, films exist i think no one remembers that eagle eye was a film but i do remember working at the cinema and seeing like produced by steven spielberg and then realizing he had nothing to do with this yeah at all. exactly but my point is like it doesn't matter none of those things matter if you choose for them not to matter like you can choose to be a cynic you can choose to be like grouchy you can choose to be that internet you know um internet dwelling person who's just sitting there ragging on everything for every reason that you want but like i think just sort of stepping back and just accepting the purity of the fact that you're still excited for it and it's still yeah potentially exciting because you don't know what you're about to see you're going to sit down in a dark cinema the curtain's going to open and something is going to appear that you've never seen before. Could be good, could be bad, and you don't know it until you actually do it. And to me, that's like the kind of magic of it all, isn't it? Like, this is why we have, we did this podcast, yep. why we did Movie Film Studios in the first place. Like, we've been, at least for me, I've been inspired by and touched by so many films that I've seen that it's become a part of how I creatively express myself. And to me, that's that's fantastic. And any media that can do that, TV shows, books, films, plays, operas, music, whatever, any of that kind of stuff that enriches you as a person, I think is super important to have. Well, the film has <laughs> stopped. My uh, it, it attempted to then replay the film again, and I very, very quickly shut down the media player because yep. I was not going to sit through that. I think, oh, look, yeah. you know, barring unforeseen future bets where I lose again, <laughs> I uh, I don't think I'll it, be... It almost at- feels like we, we should be making another bet right now. now I, that this I, one I, is I refuse. Actually- it is, I mean, to be <laughs> fair, that actually wasn't too bad because okay. ultimately the film was playing and I did have to look at some pretty awful scenes 
but mm-hmm. for the most part, that was just a, a two-hour conversation about a love of film, which um, yep. is, is kind of what I was hoping would get me through it. So I, I'm mm-hmm. glad we did that, but I, I don't foresee anywhere in my future <laughs> re-watching that film. You've learned your lesson. Okay. And I yeah, I, I know now not to bank on uh, Universal <laughs> Studios following through on their promises for, for franchising out extended universes of things. So it I'll, I'll it not- was a solid... A solid bet, and honestly, like it's very surprising that a big studio would renege on a big project like that. But so, you know, yeah. And I failed so thoroughly at work as well. It wasn't as though they made one more film and then we had to yeah. wait like the ten. They years didn't even start making another the, film. And I don't think the Mummy was that financially disastrous, right? It, like it wasn't a hit, but I think it was very much just a studio film. Like yeah, exactly I suppose what that's I was the thing. I, before. I think all the studios know average. that there is a um, law of diminishing returns on, you know, yeah. first movie gross is 250 million, next one 150, and then suddenly yeah. you're uh, below that sort of profitability mm. threshold. If you don't yeah. hit that, those high numbers, your law of diminishing returns is just going to be that much worse. Exactly. Well, I think this is a good place to leave it. Can I we think leave so. on the cusp of watching Indiana Jones 5 in can a, I, a, can a I, week or two? introduce something which might be a very difficult topic of conversation but sure what do you think is going to happen with a podcast i know you have been working to rejig the website to um uh make sure that all of our back catalog is um accessible as we mentioned we do have one sort of episode in the archives which you know may remain there may may show its uh show its ugly head at, at some point Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, I think, you know, we talked about why we stopped podcasting before. I think one of the other reasons was that it also became quite difficult to get um, enough usable trailers each week to reliably put out a podcast. There wasn't like, you uh-huh. know, we were scraping the bottom of the barrel a lot of weeks and that sort of like felt quite difficult. Do you, do you see uh, anything in the future for, for movie film studios is something we'd like to return to or do you think this is like a, a nice sort of cap off for the for for the thing that was was our podcast. So, are you saying is this going to be the last crusade end credit moment where they ride off into the sunset? Right off into or the are sunset. Are we going to come back with Indiana Jones four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I mean, ten? What was the different? The uh, nineteen eighty nine, I think, uh, last crusade came out, and then two thousand and eight yep. was Kingdom of the Crystal yep. Skull. So we could mm-hmm. leave it for nineteen years, uh, 19 come years, back, come see what back, happens, yeah. and then after that, leave it for another fifteen years and, yeah. and see what happens after that. Um, but yeah, look, I, I, look, I don't know. I, I like you're saying, I, I do enjoy podcasting. There are obviously certain barriers that that came up along the way, but um, mm. it did always sort of seem like there was a possibility of one at one stage getting back and doing something, maybe not as regularly as weekly, but um, yeah, I, I just wanted to know where you're at because this is not a conversation that we've had before. It's not something that we've discussed but it's just kind of yep. been floating there in the background i think my thoughts are here are my thoughts i i touched on sort of um what happened to my father a couple of years ago and obviously that killed any desire to do anything funny for a long time um and uh, you know i'm not saying that time heals everything but it does help and i think that part of it is remembering what he kind of gave to me and what I still want to express. Um, It's interesting, and again, I'm going to get a bit deep here, but like it's interesting talking to family members sometimes because when I'm talking to them and I just talk to them with my personality or what I consider to be my personality and they kind of mention how much 
it reminds them of him. And, and that's it's a very kind of touching comment. And I think that for me to to have that and to want to keep doing it means that I would like to keep doing something like this podcast. I'm not sure if like we would do it in the same way. Um, I think that we would tweak it in certain things. I think we got kind of a bit picky and, and um, negative on a, a lot of certain things and kind of I would rather keep it more positive yeah. in the sense that like we are just very enthusiastic film producers that just want to deliver what the audience is looking for and just make it a bit sillier in that regard rather than just sort of coming up with our own commentary about what we don't like because the thing is like the world nowadays is all about people talking about what they don't like and it's just tiring right yep. like no yep. one needs to hear my thoughts on like how bad Indiana Jones 4 is everyone knows how bad that film is like it's a known quantity and it doesn't add anything to the world to keep harping on about it but like if we are taking films that traditionally we wouldn't like or aren't good for whatever reason and just like pulling the best bits from it and just making something wacky and new like that's my way more fun to me I think that was fundamentally the second half of the podcast that we did each week was yeah having fun with it I do think we were probably maybe like you're saying a little bit too critical in watching those trailers and going who is this for why would you make oh, this yeah. you know it's um sometimes you do question that but i think trying to be positive and and, and seeing the best in in what people are making creatively is, is a really good yeah. approach to um yeah to how you would do that so, so my hope my hope at the very least is that we do actually return to the podcast in in a in the same similar form to what we've done and we bring it back and we tweak the format but by like lofty grander ambitions would be to just do more things in comedy in general particularly with you as a as a comedy partner because one of the things i've i've discovered in trying to find someone else to do stuff with is that in your head it's like oh yeah that's a great idea i'll just go find someone else to do it with and then you go and talk to people and they're just like they agree to do it or they are sort of positive about it but then you just immediately feel like you're just not on the same page at all and the struggle of trying to find someone that you can like comedically sync with is insanely difficult. Yeah. Like it is like, it is weirdly like dating. But I mean, our improv class probably had, uh, in the five terms that we did, we probably would have had maybe 40 different people that you would have done improv with over uh, the course of that. And through that, I yeah. found maybe three that I was like, yeah, I, I can, I feel comfortable doing this. I feel like, your time, your comedic timing matches my comedic timing. Your sensibility matches my sensibility, and yep. yeah, you realize just like okay, but even even good improvisers, people that you would sit in the audience and you would laugh at what they would do when you'd get on stage with them, would you just you know it wouldn't sync up properly? Just and so, yeah, it's not right. Yeah. yeah, it is. It it is a relationship that you have with someone, and it's so much more than just being skilled at comedy. It's about who they are as a person and the experiences they've had, the the media that they've consumed. If you make a weird reference to some obscure film from the 50s, if the person you're giving it to doesn't get that, they can't take what you're saying there and expand upon it so that it's good for the audience. Well, They're just going to be confused the, by it. The other thing is, like, you're expecting them to pick up on your film references. Some people just don't even get film references no, at all. It's yeah, just like it's exactly. not, the, not their, their repertoire. So um, yeah. I do feel, feel as though... 
I'm not sure how much luck it is because like I said you improvise with like 30 or 40 people you probably find one or two that work quite well for you but I do find like mm. our our shorthand works well um I do feel like we work together as well as a as a comedy team so it's it's quite lucky yeah. that we did sort of manage to find each other in that sort of way I agree and I think it's also good that we aren't we aren't the same person either we actually we are actually quite different in a lot of ways um and i find that that's also true of like other close friends i have that we are actually quite different but there's enough there that we align on yeah i think with any venn diagram if the circles just completely overlapped you just have a single circle it wouldn't be fun yeah, exactly and if they only sort of like just sort of touched tangentially you'd go well how does this even work you do want a, a, yeah. a nice proportion yeah. of stuff that overlaps and stuff that's uh, unique yeah. as well so i think i think that kind of works out all, all right for us yeah so basically, in summary, I would like to keep doing this podcast. We would probably change things. And then loftier ambitions would be to do more other things, other creative comedy, uh, comedic projects. I think we're always going to be working together on creative projects. We tend to build a lot of things together. I, um, For those of you who don't know, which you won't, I've built a full-scale replica BB-8 droid from the sequel Star Wars films that I don't even like. I just really like that droid. And... You know, Isaac was such a huge part of that, just for various little bits and pieces, painting and part of the printing and just being a, a bit of a um, sounding board. So we're always going to be able to do that. But I think that, like, the comedy side of things is something we should yeah. do more of in some way. I think, if, if anything, with COVID as well, like, this is our, f- I was going to say our first time remote recording. If it's not obvious uh. from the way that the, the audio sounds and if we're over-talking in weird spots, we are actually... Uh, not recording in person like we did for I think ninety nine percent of the the previous podcast, yeah. and obviously yeah. that you know having uh, technology or at least familiarity with the technology that allows us to remote record is partly to do with um, COVID and the fact that that yeah. technology has increased in you know both the frequency of people using it. Um, we did one recording. Uh, we recorded we Bright did. when we, yeah. we did that episode of Bright for some reason we couldn't travel yeah. and we tried to record it remotely. I don't know if it was because Bright was a bad film. I don't know if it was because I was really sick during that episode. I was really struggling to keep it together. And we uh, were just doing uh, uh, audio um, recording and we couldn't really see each other. I think <laughs> it was a little bit of over-talking. I don't think it worked particularly well. But I think yep. this has been all right in terms of like just the the flow of conversation with a, with a video recording. If, you know, we can potentially use this as a way of saving travel time, then maybe it's not, you know, five hours on a night to actually get through a podcast recording. Um, you know, we might look at doing it slightly infrequently, like bi-weekly, so we have more yeah. trailers to, to choose from. But I would be keen to, to give it another another crack at least and see yeah. see how it plays out. But, you know, who uh, knows? Yep. I reckon we get, we get ourselves back into that green room and... Yeah. just come up with something even wackier well, than that's what the people come right? up with now it would be interesting i mean we've never actually sort of actively tried to sit down and write any of the ideas that we've come up with i think it's, no. it's obviously easy to come up with a a treatment of you know half an hour of you know plot points and characters and events and not have to worry about all the <laughs> logistics of you know dialogue <laughs> and actually writing it all out but yeah. um just as a like a, as a creative pursuit just spending that time coming up with new ideas has just always been fun and I always like looking back yeah. at uh, what we come up with and going oh yeah Magnus Carlsen in like a die hard style <laughs> action film where he's using his chess skills yeah. to, to navigate through defeating bad guys that's kind of yeah. fun I that do like great yeah and the nice thing as as you've been experimenting as well is that with the rise of AI we can now make 
movie posters yeah. for all of these make believe films, and they look really good. We did we did muck around with the the gritty reboot of Blues Clues as a yeah. hard boiled detective. Um, we did yeah. a couple of Shrink the Prairie Dog, um, our Sonic <laughs> the Hedgehog ripoff with uh, yeah. where James Marsden, um, with James Marsden, yeah, yeah, uh, is the the offsider to a thrill seeking action adventure uh, Prairie Dog. So That's yeah, there's, it, yeah, there's some good posters that come up around that, which um, which has always yeah. been kind of fun, a bit of fun. See, and and now that with AI generation, it's just so much faster and easier to, yeah. to generate that See, sort of stuff. AI is still going to need us to come up with the ideas in the first place. Exactly. Because it's I mean, never going to come up with anything uh, as insane as Magnus Carlsen as an action hero. Who knows? It might might be a fun <laughs> experiment one week to actually sort of punch in uh, all the different trailers that we watch and all the different uh, you know elements and ideas that we like and, and tell it to see if we can generate five mm. movie ideas that uses the yeah. idea of a, a giant alligator that's... Uh, is terrorizing downtown Baghdad. I, I don't yeah. know, whatever, whatever you know, elements we have to pull, happen to pull from the, the trailers that we've watched that week. Yeah, I think that's a lovely place to leave it. What do you think? I think so too. Do you remember how we ended this podcast? I, I look. I do remember. Is I remember the last two words that I say are roll credits, but yeah. I can't remember if it's um, you know. You normally do most of the the wrap out. You like I've been IJ, yeah. AJ. So and I've I, been I would be I would be there saying um, follow us on Instagram or on Twitter. You can access our website at moviefilmstudios.com. I've bought the .com domain name now, so we are no longer at moviefilmstudios.net. We can be at moviefilmstudios.com. Well, there you go. We're really moving up in the world. Fully pro- uh, pro- uh, professional. And I think I would say, and and I think that's it. And then you would say, all that's left to say now is. Uh, something, 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 something. I've been, I've been Isaac, and then I've been AJ, and then I say roll credits. Roll credits. Yeah. Ah, uh, what and, is that last line now? Oh dear. I'm gonna like actually scrub into an episode scrub and into find right, out. Okay. We we can't we can't end with a we can't end close enough is good enough. No, because we got the we opened it up perfectly. It's true. I did. I mean. We're not going to hear it, but I definitely flubbed the first time we tried to do the <laughs> intro. I completely lost my train of thought and just went onto a, a gibberish tangent. But right, so the line is: uh, "All that remains is to thank you all for listening." I've been Isaac. That's something you say because I'm not Isaac. Okay, that's fine. Um, and then I'm assuming after that you say, "And I've been AJ," and then I say, "Roll yes. credits." Correct. All right. And then the theme music kicks in and fades out. And it fades out. All right. So do you want to mm. give it a, a crack? Let's give it a shot. All right. All that remains is to thank you all for listening. I've been Isaac. And I've been AJ. Roll credits. Watch me.